tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie morning. Welcome along to Tip Today. 1800 938 007. Our free phone number. It won't cost you if you'd like to make a call to the show and uh, Doc is producing today. Coming up on the programme this morning, listener reaction following discussions on yesterday's show. Senator Michael McDowell on the referendums. What is celiac disease? Well, Muriel Cuddy of Marito 8020 will have some answers as far as where that is concerned. Are you pale, stale and male? Well, you might be under threat. We'll chat about that too. The Disappeared in Tipperary, brand new book. Uh, Very interesting stuff there for Tipperary if you're into uh, history and we'll speak farming towards the end of the programme as well. So all of that and much, much more on the way. You can text and WhatsApp 083-311-3311. You can email tip today at tipfm.com. Let's have a look at the front pages. The Irish Indo leading with the story that Tony Hullahan has lined up a new role in the HSE that is paid up to €257,000 a year. After his previous uh, planned move to Trinity College Dublin, you might remember that because it collapsed in scandal, I suppose. Uh, The former chief medical officer who became a household name during the pandemic is poised to become a consultant in public health medicine in the National Cancer Control Programme working on cancer prevention treatment. Now, this is despite his role in the cervical check scandal being the source of controversy. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, Let's have a look at the Irish Examiner. And their lead story, detectives are trawling through documents and records seized from a large retail outlet in Kerry, which was uh, searched following a a record seizure of crystal meth in Cork Port last uh, Friday. And also uh, the two young agricultural students killed in the crash in Limerick have been described as uh, exemplary students who were part of a tight-knit community among their college uh, peers. And uh, another another tragedy on our roads there, of course. The Irish Times and uh, their main story is an RTE story indeed, or indeed related to RTE, because a turf war has emerged between the two Oireachtas uh, committees examining the RTE controversy in a, a letter Earlier this month, uh, the Fianna Fáil TD, Neave Smith, the chairwoman of the Oireachtas Media Committee, uh, warned that there had been considerable overlap between it and the Public Accounts Committee PAC. And she wrote that this had uh, resulted in duplication of witnesses attending, with the same witnesses being invited to attend at two separate committee hearings on the same topic, in uh, some cases on the same day. Uh, yeah, my reaction to that is, so what? So what? Because, you know, the two committees are coming at it from different angles, you would you would imagine. Um, and also we're reading that the Department of Defence has uh, paid at least $8.5 million to Israeli arms manufacturers for the military drones and other equipment in the past uh, decade. And also that whole debacle around the D Hotel in Drogheda and um, the hotel management, they've said it will not be possible for child protection reasons for the facility to have a dual use 
whereby it accommodates both asylum seekers and tourists. Now, however, Leo Varadkar told the Doyle yesterday, as you probably know, that it can be done and it would be the best solution for the town. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, works out. Um, The Irish Daily Mail... Uh, the main story on their front page, big money divorces have returned to Celtic Tiger levels with uh, booming house prices forcing more couples into the higher courts to battle for the division of assets. So that's a look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. If you'd like to make comment on any of that, you can text and WhatsApp 083 311 Now, after listening to Sinn Féin local election candidate Dean McGrath speaking about government policies yesterday on the programme, many listeners indeed got in touch to share their thoughts. And uh, Martin joins me now. Good morning to you, Martin. Good morning, friend. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Good to talk to you today. I think you believe the Irish government, it's a, a top-down sort of a setup. What What do you mean by that, Martin? Well, I don't believe that they make the decisions. That's what I mean. I don't think they make the policies. They might have some some hand in it, but I don't believe they do. Because um, if you look at the EU, the EU is a central power. Mm-hmm. Like, we only see the politicians that go into the EU. But who are the key players in the EU? In the EU? Actually, a good question is, who set up the EU? Mm. Where did it come from? Initially, the idea was an amalgamation of countries from an economic point of view, but it's yeah, certainly... Central, it, central, yes, yeah, centralisation of power. Yeah, but do you think it and has it makes, grown out of proportion over the years in terms I, but, of I, the power that it has? Well, sir, I don't know who's there to regulate it as such. Who's there to... Who can regulate it? Mm, well, we, elect, we, elect, we elect members to, to, to represent countries and, and set policies... But like I think you were chart there, and, and and it was a breakdown of the structure. Like and it came from. I was looking at Ivor Cummins there last or the other night there, and it came from he one of his um, EU channels for documents. There's the latest insane laws passed. You won't believe this. That was the name of it by Ivor Cummins. It's about three days ago, mm. and he put up that chart. And he was going down through it, and you can see from from the structure of the chart you have the policy makers. You have the at the top here. You have the Bank of international settlements and the central banks. Mm. I mean, they're, they're setting policies. And, like, and, you have, and uh, are you concerned that some of the policies that's being set we don't even know about? We're not aware of what's going on? Well, I, don't think, or we're not, I don't think we're told anything at all, to be honest with you, friend. Mm. I honestly believe... But I'm not basing this on one, docu- on one, mm. one programme. See, I've been, I've been following this for years. I always thought for years back and actually, it was. I go back. I, I, even I'm not the first thing to think about. It. it was actually a farmer in Iowa that uh, was I clicked onto, and I was watching him, and he was talking about that roundup thing. And then he went back to the EU and and, and who was influenced the, the policies in the EU. And sure, all the big corporation names came up. Every one of them, he just listed them all off, and he put up a chart of them. And you can see then it's probably the same. I, I don't believe it has changed. I yeah, don't believe and, it has and changed. Is it not naive to think, though, Martin, that you know? Uh, that lobbying doesn't go on everywhere. I mean, lobbying is, is is happening at every every aspect of government, you know, be it here on the island or in the EU or whatever. Yeah, but the thing about it is when you elect in governments, like, they, they, they set policies, like, and, mm. and you think that they'd follow through on their policies because they got elected by the people mm. to actually follow through and then they come around and they don't, 
that are just dropping. It's like they want to get elected. Now, I'll give you an example. Look abroad in, in Italy at the moment. There were that Maloney. Mm. She was elected prime minister. Go back and look at her videos. Look at what she was saying about... Yeah. She, was, she was very right-wing. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, look, I, I, I don't, you can call her right-wing if you like. If, mm. if you don't defend your own country, you don't defend your own cultures mm. and your beliefs. I mean, where are you going? Like, But she was talking... Um, yeah, but sorry, more, Martin, more can I just stop you there? When I say right-wing, I don't always mean that as an insult, by the way. You know, right-wing is on the... No, spe- no, on yeah, the spectrum of politics, yeah. you know, as in yeah, left wing yeah. as well. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, un- I understand that. Yeah. But I'm just saying, I'm just putting the adding a bit more to it. But the thing about mm. she was talking about what she was going to do, and people vote her in. And now, look, she does mm. nothing. She does nothing. Like, she's a total letdown. But the thing about it is, who controls the structure? That's mm. why I sent you on, on the system. It's like you can elect who you want, you can put in who you like. Well, they try and have a say in that. But mm. the thing about it is, if they're setting the policies, and they control who controls the money. But is, is there not an element, Martin, of real politic? I mean, if you if you become the leader of a country, or if your 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 party is leading a country, the reality of politics is presented to you very very quickly, is it not? You know, and in the case of Maloney, there she's got a little more centre, maybe just to make herself more palatable, I suppose, internationally. Yeah, so it's diplomatic internationally, but you're the death thing about it. Internationally, she's she's following along with the trend. Like, do you want complete open borders? And people are talking, but you hear people talk about diversity. There is no strength. There never was strength in diversity. And if you go back long enough, you can hear professors all from America they travel the world, and they're not my color. They're, I don't, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say it. Like, they're they're dark skinned they're, they're black Americans, and they'll even go back and explain about they talk about slavery. They'll go back to the history, and you can look at the, the television programs that they're on. Like, they've traveled the world, and they'll even tell you. Diversity you've never said. And she look at Brave Man House after coming out broad in England and she got slated. And she's even saying it. How do you put that many cult- diversity together when they all have different belief systems and different cultures and different values? Like it's a wish, uh, a, mis- and, a mismatch. But in, in, a, in an ideal world, should we not be able to live in a multicultural, multi ethnic society and let everybody go about their own business, whatever that might be? Oh, I, or I am I being naive now, Martin? I think yeah, I think people need to start looking at the reality. I put you this: Would you go to a Muslim country, uh, say as a woman, and walk around freely like you do here? Would you go to an African country and walk around freely? I don't even know if a white man would be safe. I don't yeah, in any of those countries. And sure, and then they have the gall then to, to, to allow people to come in and vote. I mean, we I don't think any white Western person go over to a Muslim country and be allowed to vote, or go to an African country well, and vote. As you that's know, that's just in local local elections, and anybody. I know, who's, but that, yeah. that's 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 the destruction of democracy. Mm. That's the absolute well, you see, other people would argue with you that it promotes democracy because it's people who are living. How does it? Living, how does it well, I, I was oh. just going to say, it's people who are living here and surely they have a right to some form of representation if we've allowed them in here legally to live in this country, Martin. But sure, the thing about it, they come into, they come into a country and it's all based on you come in and you integrate and you go, you work. Mm. You integrate. The big part of it is you integrate. But if you see communities are building up their own communities, they're bringing their cultures and the communities with them and they're re-establishing them in, in, in Western countries. Mm. What do you say to the argument then that the Irish have done that? We, we've gone to other countries, we've established in some cases our own ghettos, we, we've certainly brought That's religion true. and education uh, as we That's see true. it to these countries as well, Martin. So what do you say to that argument? 
Well, that which is true, but I don't. I think a lot of the Irish went abroad to work. Um, they were forced to work. Mm. I don't think. I think, and when they went, they forced. But your friend, you'll always get some some people in the middle of they want to, 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 to take the system. Mm. But they went most of them went to work, and I don't believe. Like, they keep talking about the Irish, but mm. give the examples. Tell us where it happened. I know it was ghettos in New York, but sure, or America. But America itself was only was only getting up. So I'm saying you had the Italians there as well, and they were all fighting mm. for their turf. You know mm. what I'm saying? But saying that then, Fran, if you look all, look abroad in, in, in Denmark, like I, I hear people talking about the Australian system and they're talking about we should implement the Australian system, we should implement this system. But those systems, they're being flooded. If you actually follow what's going on in, in, in Canada and Australia, they're being flooded with different mismatch of migrants. They're just open the doors. But Denmark, they won't allow that. They won't allow our people to come together or build communities they want people to integrate. They'll actually break it up because it doesn't work for the country. Like at the end of the day, you're coming in to, to help the country and help yourself as such. But yeah. you look look what's going on in look what's going on in the UK now at the moment. You've got um, uh, I'm not picking on any any, any um, my, or any minority, right? but you've got the Muslims now. They want to come together and they want to create their own party in the UK. But you, but you see, there's 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 enough numbers over there. So many Muslim people. Do, again, do they not deserve a representation if they've been allowed into a country? Do you, do you know what I'm saying to you, Martin? You know. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but sure, yeah, sure. Then you then you need to start talking to the people. What type of country do you want? Like, I mean, you can yeah. see what's going on at the moment. People. But, but you do take my point. If the decision oh, is there to allow do, people yeah. in, should they not it's, be yeah. represented? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it's true. But you, the, the thing about that, when you let people in, you don't just open the borders and allow anybody and everybody mm. to come in. So look what went on there in the Netherlands. Was it the Netherlands there only lately? There was, yeah. there was ma- massive right. And what were they fighting over? You had pro, pro-Eritrean government fighting anti-Eritrean government mm. in the Netherlands. They were killing each other. Yeah, in, I another, mean, what, in what, another country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's that got to do with us? Right. What, what's the end of it going to be, do you think, Martin? Oh, I, 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 sure, I don't know. I don't know, friend. You look, look. I tell you, I can go and you go and say, what do you, what do you like? I can go back to Trump. Whether you like Trump or don't like Trump, but if you follow his speeches and listen to his speeches, he, he's even coming. It's coming down to the wire with him. He says in 2024, it's them or us. One of us has to go. Like, and he's talking about the deep state or the American people, or mm. that's it. He said, yeah. and he's even he's saying it. The only thing you, I, I tell you, you know, if you do support. Trump or, or or whatever, but just be careful of what you wish for because, you know, while he's isolationist in his policies on America, it could be detrimental to us here and to Europe. You know, so yeah, but sure, the other side of that is, or friend, if you've got um, our good leaders, I mean, even Trump said it when he was in power, he was open to debate. He wanted to to, to, yeah. to deal with people, but all our power is is, is gone. It's centralised in in the EU. We don't have any power. And you look what's going on with the farmers. Sure, I was listening to the World Economic Forum there, Davos, and they're on the chart. And and you and you can even see there that the government is only the enforcers. You've got the distributors, the the the, the policy distributors. You've got the policy makers. You can see the chart. And so the government are nearly at the bottom of the rung. Like, but for most people, how many people know that? And, and go, sorry, you were going back there about Trump and that. But um, I, it's hard to know. Like, look at the American people. Sure, they're on their knees. They're oh, on their knees. All right. Well, Martin, it's a most interesting discussion and we appreciate you coming on with us this morning. Thanks, Brian, thanks very much. To, Brian, I just wanted to say one thing. You were on to me there one about the roundup thing. Yes. I wanted to just say to you there only before Christmas there that uh, Monsanto was ordered to pay £1.5 billion to um, three complaint or plaintiffs there. 
And also, she just got a, in, in, the, in the mail there about a new study that may explain how Roundup weed killer can cause cancer. I just said I'd throw it in there while I was here. Was talking All right, Martin. And, and, and uh, can you still go out and buy that here? You can. Oh, you can, of course. I think it was oh. passed. Remember you were saying something about it being, it was up for to debate in yeah. the EU. And then they went along and, and I think it's, yeah. it's so gone some, through. Some, wa- some watery reaction to it, I, I remember at the time. Martin, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. And good good morning you. to you. Uh, thank you for that. Now... Uh, needless to say, the referendum is looming. Many people starting to consider how they will vote. But one listener is a little uh, confused by the lack of uh, posters in the county. Tracy, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm thanks very, for having me. Oh, thanks very much for coming on, Tracy. Yeah, it, you're bringing up an interesting point. You're not seeing posters around the county. Is that what no, you're saying to me? and I visited Cork the other day. My daughter had a hospital appointment and there was loads of posters in Cork. Yeah. And there's nothing here. That's interesting. And have you thought about that in terms of, you know, why that is the case? Um, I don't know, to yeah. be honest. Um, maybe Cork is more organised than we are up here or something. Yeah. But, and would you like to see more posters? Um, to be honest, some people don't really know what the referendum is about and what way their decision is going to go. Now, I do. Mm. I've got the thing in the door and I've read over it and yeah. I know exactly what way I'm going to vote. And the, the the document you're talking about, or the pamphlet, or whatever, it's here yes, in front of me. Are, are you like you're okay about that? Are you? Do you feel it has explained everything properly? Mm, it, it's not really plain English, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> I had to go over it with a friend. We sat down together and went over it together to properly understand it. Isn't that brilliant? So you met a friend yeah. and you went through it yourselves. Yeah, and you needn't tell me how you're voting, but have you made up your mind how you're voting? Yeah. Fully made up my mind. Right. And, I mean, what circumstances are you looking to that would have informed you to make that decision? Some of it is my own family status. Yes. Um, I'm a single parent, so okay. that would have a lot to do with my decision on how I'm voting. Right. And do you think that the referendums, as they are, are they necessary at this point in time? Um, one of them is, yes. The other one, no. <laughs> oh, okay, right. So you're kind of giving me a good idea how you're. You, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you're probably going to split your vote, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and the the people of of your own age, Tracy, that you might chat to, are they engaged um, in this uh, in the way you and your friend are? Most of the are? people I talk to are, and most of them are voting in the same kind of way I'm voting. Yeah. You know, uh, to be fair. That, that, that's interesting. We, we had some young people on, on a panel there last week. I'm not sure if you had a chance to uh, to listen to it, but I found it very interesting. They're smart kids. They're in college or they're going to college and all of that. Um, but they, they haven't engaged in this at all. They're, they're not aware of it. They don't know what it's about. Um, that kind of shocked me. I suppose young people aren't really thinking about family just yet. You know, when you have children, it's more of interest to you. Mm. You know, and I have children. I have a child, and most of my friends would have children, or they're either older and would be of the family age. Mm. So it would be more of interest. And would to you, young people, it's not. Do you mind my asking you? As a, it, it, you are a single parent, Tracy. Yeah. Yeah, and that notion of not being recognised over the years. I mean, do, do you feel that you haven't been recognised properly? No, we haven't. No, it's, it's been very hard really going 
through the years, we like even say you're going to the social welfare, you're not considered technically a family. Wow, and is that made clear to you in some way? In some ways, yes, and in some ways not. Like, I've always considered myself and my daughter a family. Yes. Now, the council, yeah, the council do, to be fair. They're very good, I must say. I would always consider a single-parent home, you know, a family. Now, they do have, in social welfare terms, you have the one-parent family when the child is under seven. Mm. Now, and I'm on now disability. Like, I've tried for years to get work but I've unfortunately had to give up on that. But the second vote whereby a parent can stay at home and mind their child, that's the one which I'm concerned about the most, is if they take that away, will that support be left there available for parents? Right. That notion that for a woman to stay in the home, she shouldn't be financially yeah. deprived to do so, that that already yeah. exists. In That's what I'd worry if, if you vote no on that, or yes on that one. Um, will they take that financial support away? That's interesting. So do you think that the outcome of this will be a yes, no, as opposed to yes, yes, I no? I would no. say so. Yeah. Because if, if there is any worry from women that the, any financial supports will be taken away from them, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it, it, it's an interesting one indeed, but I'm delighted to know that you're engaging and I love the idea that people would sit down with each other and go through this and maybe make up their oh, yeah. mind and, you know. Because the wording isn't very clear and to be properly understand it, you do need to sit down with another person and go through it properly. And the notion of durable... Does that does that give you concern? Because we don't exactly know, I suppose, what that yeah, does. what that means. No, that's yeah. It's very strange wording. Yeah, and that's what I find. What do you make of what we're being told that it probably will be the Supreme Court that will make a decision on what is durable or what is seen to be a durable relationship? Yeah, that's that's concerning. Yeah. Like, why can't they put it in the wording in there now and let us know exactly what they're doing and what they intend to do? Mm. Instead yeah. of saying the Supreme Court will make that decision. Yeah, o- only if it's challenged, of course, and it presumably will be challenged at uh, some point yeah. uh, or other. I'll be speaking to uh, Senator Michael McDowell in just a little while. You might be interested in the, in that conversation, uh, Tracy. Yeah, in the, or I'll in, be listening. <laughs> in, in the meantime, can I just put it out there? that um, why are the posters not up? I mean, come to think of it, I haven't seen posters up, but then again... My... No, there are none. Yeah. There's not any around Thurlis anyway, because I'm in and out of Thurlis every day, and there's none there. Right. Um... And I've seen a good few down in Cork when we were down there. My daughter even pointed them out to me. Okay, well, maybe maybe some of our listeners out there, some of the politicians listening to us, uh, might be able to inform us as to why this is the case. But it certainly is very interesting indeed. Um, good to talk to you, Tracy, and look after yourself. And thanks for your time this morning. I will do you too, friend. Thank you. Bye bye to you now. That's uh, Tracy speaking to us. Jaren uh, South's tip, speaking about Martin, unfairly, I think. She says, could you get the rambling Trump supporter off the radio? He's got nothing of substance to, to add. Well, do you know what, now, Jaren? He's got an opinion, and in Martin's case, he's got a number of opinions, and we like to uh, provide a a platform for that. So, you know, why shouldn't he speak about uh, whatever he wants to talk about? Um, and he certainly gave me food for thought, anyway, for sure. Uh, Joe is in third. He says they should not be allowed to vote in local elections. Uh, they are here on a temporary protection basis. The clue is in temporary. They have uh, representation in the Refugee Council 
of Ireland, says Joe. And again, this was part of my conversation with um, with Martin. Yeah, but you see, if you allow people in and if you accept that these people have rights, I mean, surely some of the rights are representation, you know. Um, now, they can't vote in anything other than the local elections. Anyway, yeah, how do you feel about that? 083 Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Yeah, listen around to say good morning, Fran. I'd just like to add my two cents worth uh, to give a bit of balance to the debate. I've been to Muslim countries and African countries and I was always safe over there. I've only ever been attacked in Ireland. Racism is fine and well in modern Ireland. As far as the referendum is concerned, we should be looking for equality for all homemakers, caregivers, not just females. The definition of a family has changed so much in the past few years, it needs to be reflected in the Constitution. It's 2024, not 1924, says Deirdre uh, E. And uh, listening to us in Kilmanahan today, and thanks for that, uh, Deirdre. Um, just to clarify, Deirdre then says a little later, um, I've only been attacked by Irish people here, never by non-nationals. Somebody else saying if they don't have a passport, voting isn't even up for discussion. Send them home. They'll see two or three, uh, two-thirds of the imports going home, it says here. All right then, 083-311-3311. Now we were talking about the weather to Cahill Nolan from Ireland's Weather Channel on the programme yesterday, but sadly we lost uh, a connection with him and I'm delighted that he's back with us again. Good morning to you, Cahill. A very good morning, Fran, and hopefully you can hear me a little bit better this morning. We can hear you <laughs> perfectly well, well indeed. You were talking to us uh, before uh, the connection broke down yesterday about possibly a chill on, on the way, Cahill? But that is the case, I suppose. Look, if we wake up this morning, we certainly felt that there are fresher conditions across the county. That's because during the night, a particularly heavy band of showers pushed their way through. There's actually a little bit of cold front and that introduced much colder air behind. So we have had some showers so far this morning and those temperatures have dropped back. They're only around about four to six degrees across the county at the moment. And they'll remain in the pretty low single figures today. So no better than about five to seven degrees Celsius throughout the day. And with that, we'll see further heavy showers start to push their way in. And some of those showers could have a little bit of a wintry mix to them. So maybe fallen as sleet, probably snow or some of the higher ground of the county, maybe like the Galaxy Mountains or the Silver Mines. There's a warning in the in the mail today that kind of struck me and they're talking about thunder snow. Oh, what is that? And is that a possibility? It's not particularly a possibility, not for low level. So I think what they're kind of getting at is that we are seeing heavy showers pushing off the Atlantic and some of those showers could well be thundery in nature. What they're kind of banking on is that these showers fall as snow to lower level and that they also produce snow at the same time as well as being thunderstorms. It's pretty unusual that we would see that. Usually, the last time that I remember that specifically happening in Ireland, it would have been back in 2010, and that would have been through the Irish Sea. There was a couple of actually very quite lively thunderstorms at that point down the Irish Sea that also produced quite a bit of snowfall close to the east coast. But on this occasion, I don't think we're going to see snow at lower levels. We're only going to see a mixture of sleet and rain. Over higher ground, there is a risk of a dusting of snow, but 
I don't think we're going to be too much in the way impacted by thunder snow. It's again a little bit of a trick by the media in the sense that they're trying to get a little bit of clickbait. It sounds ominous, but mm. it's not quite. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I sort of jumped on it straight away because I have a lot of travelling to do over the next uh, few days. W- what about frost, Cahill? It doesn't look like it's going to be much of a problem either, to be quite honest. Yeah. So over the course of over the course of tonight, tomorrow night, we keep pretty fresh winds at times, and that'll feed in that I suppose if it's cooler air off the Atlantic. It's not particularly cold air. Temperatures are only around about average for the time of year, and even nighttime temperatures they'll dip close to freezing. Maybe one two degrees Celsius, but I don't think they're going to dip below freezing. Partly on account of that wind, and also partly on account of cloud feeding in off the Atlantic as associated with those showers. So I don't really envisage frost and ice being too much of a problem over the course of the next couple of days, maybe into the weekend, maybe Saturday night, Sunday morning, perhaps Sunday night into Monday morning. It could be a little bit more of a problem as we see clearer skies and we still keep that cooler air. So perhaps then it's something to keep an eye on. It has been remarkably warm over the last while, hasn't it? I mean, I see nighttime temperatures about 10 or 11 degrees, which are, you know. It certainly has. I suppose this winter in general, albeit from maybe one or two brief interludes, has been a very mild winter. We haven't, to, to cast our mind back, I can't remember at any point seeing snowfall really at anywhere across mm. the country. Mm. Maybe one occasion across the northern half of the country, but that's been it. We've seen a couple of cold nights. We had a spell, I suppose, kind of just into the new year where we saw temperatures down as low as minus 7, minus 8 degrees Celsius for a couple of nights, but that's been it really. It has been a particularly mild winter, and I suppose it feeds off the back of what was, indeed, if we look at the records, was it was a record-breaking year in terms of warmth last year, not just at an Irish level, but also certainly on a global level then as well. It's very interesting. Can I ask you a question? Because it's a, it's a subject of conversation among... I have another hat on me at times as a musician. And a, a lot of musicians are feeling a little aggrieved at some of these um, warnings that come out, like red warnings and, and, and yellow warnings and, and stuff for, for weather. And sometimes it puts people off going out to socialise, even though in in whatever parts of the, the country we might be in, it, it may seem grand and no problem. Do you believe in that notion of putting out those coloured warnings? I believe that the coloured warnings serve a purpose. I think that the system itself is probably flawed in the sense that we base a lot of these warnings off a specific, it's a criteria level at the moment, so we need to see winds in excess of 80 or 120 kilometres per hour before we issue certain standards of warnings. Also, I think in the context of Ireland, we have a tendency to, I suppose it's partly due to the GA, let's say, over the years, but we kind of focus very much on the county level. And what you notice with the weather in lots of situations is, is that in a larger county, let's say, the likes of Tipperary, you could have very different conditions in Ross Grade than you would have, for example, in Carrick and Shure or Clonmel. Sure, yeah. um, so you're issuing warnings on a blanket level at the status red warning, potentially for wind speeds, whereas perhaps in Rosgrave they're really only status yellow winds, whereas perhaps in Clamel they could be status red, yet the county has to be issued with a blanket ban. So if you're in Rosgrave and you're looking at it and you've seen, well, it's not that windy, I've seen worse conditions before, yet we're in a status red, you're going to question the warning. And that applies across the country as well in terms of the, the scale of the counties that you're forecasting for. So... The system is far from perfect, yes. I do believe weather warnings, they do serve a purpose. And I can see the point where musicians certainly would feel aggrieved mm. on some occasions. A couple of weeks back, I had the pleasure of, of dealing with another colleague of yours in the media, Joe Finnegan, yes. in Shannonside, Northern yeah. Sounds, who works as a music promoter as well. Sure. Um, and and we had to liaise with him over, I think it was 
the weather warnings for Storm Debbie. Is, he had a couple of shows he was putting on and mm. needed to get a very accurate forecast. But I can see where, where they're coming from, certainly. It's a flawed system, uh, but it does serve a purpose. It just needs tweaking, really. All right, well answered. Uh, Cahill, thank you for your time. and Lovely to talk to you again. Uh, thank you and good morning to you. That's uh, Cahill Nolan there from Ireland's Weather Channel. We'll take a break back in just a moment. If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Now, we continue with our coverage of opinion around the upcoming referendums. And uh, Michael McDowell is a senior counsel and uh, independent senator, former Taunish, of course, uh, Minister for Justice and Progressive Democrats TD. He also served as Attorney General and he joins me now. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Fran. And thanks so much for your time this morning. Your, your columns in, in, in the Irish Times over the past few weeks have been dedicated to the reasons that you're voting no and encouraging uh, us to vote no. Can I ask you to sum up those reasons for us, if I could? Well, um, there are two referendums, as you know, one of which is taking out the uh, wording, uh, important wording in Article uh, 41, uh, Section 2 of the Constitution, which has in the past been relied on by the Supreme Court in very, very serious and important cases. And the second uh, one is to um, change the, the, uh, the law, the, the, what the Constitution says about the basis of the family, to say that a family um, no longer is based on marriage, but uh, is based on marriage and what they say are to be other durable relationships and um, they are saying, the government is saying that the meaning of that other phrase, other durable relationships, is for the courts to decide in future, mm. not for not for the uh, um, for the legislature to decide. And would that not be usual in referendums? That sometimes the wording would have to be challenged in some way, Senator, um, at at various different points along the way. Well, I mean, in this case, um, we know that the uh, government spent uh, over um, a whole year, uh, they had an interdepartmental group looking at the wording which they were proposing. Mm-hmm. And um, they, uh, the uh, Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, said that uh, this group had considered the pros and cons of the wording and um, the ups and downs, as he put it, of, of the consequences of, of this change. And when um, we sought in the Senate Independent Group uh, access via freedom of information to the minutes of that meeting, so, uh, of those meetings, so that we could see what, in fact, um, was uh, lying behind the wording. And um, we were denied it, and we were told that the public could only have access to it when the vote is over, because they they claim completely spuriously that the um, that their analysis of their own wording um, uh, should be kept effectively secret until uh, the vote is over. When it comes to adjudicating on what is durable, um, John Lynch is our solicitor and he comes on with us every week about various different uh, legal matters. But he made the point, and I wonder what you think of this, is that the word durable will be adjudicated on in light of marriage because marriage will still be in there. So I'm taken from that, like the construct of marriage, that, you know, either a, a man and a woman and children or a man and a man and children or whatever, but that they will uh, adjudicate it using marriage as, I suppose, the, the blueprint in some way? Well, I mean, um, if, if that were the case, um, uh, one would think um, maybe so. But, I mean, the Minister O'Gorman has claimed that uh, he wanted to include single mothers and their child. Um, so, I mean, it, it, that can't have anything to do with uh, 
marriage as the blueprint. And um, you see, there's, there's all sorts of problems, Fran, which, are, which flow from this. I mean, if you say that, for instance, at the moment we have, we have laws for cohabitants, and um, we give certain rights uh, to people who are in cohabita- cohabitation mm. relations um, to maintenance and to, um, to be looked after uh, from the estate of the other side. Um, provided that, for instance, the, uh, the relationship has lasted five years, that's provided in the 2010 Act, or if there's a child um, of, the, of, of, the co- of, of the cohabitants after two years. Um, but uh, this simply, uh, that simply is something for the Iraqis by law to provide. What they're doing here is they're saying that it'll be up to the um, courts to decide in future cases what durable means. Now, that's all very well, except for this, that courts don't decide things just in the abstract. They decide because there are two parties before them um, arguing about um, uh, what co- uh, durable would mean in, the, in their case. I mean, if, if, if uh, for instance, a man um, uh, had a, a relationship which lasted 18 months with a, with a, with, with a woman and, uh, and they had a child, is that a durable relationship? No, according to the 2010 legislation, um, he would. The mother there would not be entitled to claim maintenance and uh, a share in his estate if he died. On the other hand, um, uh, you, you could have cases where a man would be, uh, say, a single mother and her child, and a man moves in and they have two more children, and then he leaves and uh, sets up another uh, relation, long-term relationship with somebody else. Well, if, that, if the first woman and her child was a family and the uh, first arrangement where, where they lived together and had two more children is now to be considered a family, can a man be party to um, a number of, of families in succession? And if you're, if you're using the, the terminology of the Constitution, the Constitution says that, um, you know, this is the fundamental unit group of society. And are we going to allow um, a, a single man to be part of two families in future? Um, and uh, again, just, uh, I don't know what your um, uh, resident solicitor said, but uh, I'm sure he'd agree with me that at the moment, everyone knows whether they're married or not. And you can't dissolve a marriage without um, getting a court order. And the court order can't be made under the Constitution, as provided in the Constitution, unless all the, the um, dependents and, and parties uh, to, the, uh, to the marriage are properly uh, um, provided for. Uh, but if, yeah. if you're in, if you're in, if you're in a, um, a durable relationship and you walk out the door, there's nothing to stop, stop you forming another durable relationship. And um, uh, you can have successive dur- durable relationships. Uh, your own objections are they largely around the semantics, the wording of this, or do you, do you feel any need to amend um, uh, the article in question? Well, there, there is there, there is no need to, to, to amend the constitution. Um, there's not, no, no need at all to make these amendments. If the government wants to do anything in relation to single parents, or if it wants to uh, change the law in relation to cohabitants, or if it wants to um, uh, change um, uh, its provision for carers. Uh, it can do all of that by an ordinary statute. But what it's doing is it's tinkering with the Constitution and it's going to bring about very serious effects. I mean, if you say 
that um, uh, the family is the fundamental unit group of society and that um, co- um, uh, durable relationship, non-married families um, can um, uh, enjoy the same status as married people. That has necessary implications for pensions law, immigration law, um, uh, succession law, um, taxation law, social welfare law. All of those things um, uh, um, take account of family relationships. And, uh, you know, the, the real question is from now on, are you, in a, are you in a durable relationship which makes you part of a family? That's something that you can only find out by going to court. Do you have concerns that at least two ministers and a couple of councillors, in fact, have come out and said that the Constitution, as it stands currently, says that a woman's place is in the home? I do. I have a very, that's, a, that's wholly untrue. And the, um, the, uh, pres- the chairman of the Referendum Commission, Ms Justice Marie Baker, has gone on the record, and you can find it online, yeah saying that is wholly untrue. And of course, I'm, I mean, this old canard that the Constitution says that women's, women's place is in the home, it's utterly untrue. And I mean, the Chief Justice years ago, um, Susan Denham, when she was, de- in, 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 when she was um, dealing with a case in the Supreme Court as an ordinary judge of that court, she also pointed out that um, uh, this uh, canard is just simply untrue. But there are many lazy-minded journalists I'm afraid, and many um, um, uh, participants in this debate who keep on uh, dropping the the, uh, the phrase that, um, that this is all to do with getting rid of the, of, of the provision in the Constitution that says woman's place is in the home. It doesn't say that. It never said that. And in fact, the Constitution at Article 45 says that men and women equally are free to... Um, they are free to... Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, to earn lively, their livelihood um, uh, and, and to support themselves. Is that Article 45? Yes. Yes. And, and that's very interesting because I think you brought that up in the past. And So do you need to look at other articles to inform like an article in particular, if you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, the, con- the Constitution has to be read as a whole. Yes, yeah. But yeah. I mean, um, Article 45 contains directive principles of social policy um, which are um, for the exclusive attention of the Oireachtas and are not meant to confer, con, con, confirm or confer rights uh, for people to litigate in court. But if you read the document as a whole, it makes it very, very clear that men and all citizens, and this is the exact phrase, men and women equally have the right um, to uh, pursue, um, uh, to, to earn their livelihoods. So the notion that it, it, it somehow says that women shouldn't uh, be out there earning is completely incorrect. Another point that I just would make to you is, you know, we're dealing with, um, if, if, we have, if we extend family rights uh, to um, all participants in durable relationships, um, you're going to face a situation where claims will be made, for instance, for um, equality in dividing assets of the, the parties to that relationship. So, I mean, I myself have been involved in, in one family law case which ended up with a, with a judge actually physically dividing a farm. And I think, you know, um, uh, when we get to that kind of consequence to, um, uh, to uh, having people um, come to court to claim that they were in a durable relationship, that it could end up with um, the court dividing the assets of a family dividing the family farm or 
the shares in a family business or whatever. Um, these are really serious issues and uh, we shouldn't just blunder into right. them. I, I think you were accused, when you brought up that um, in one of your columns, I think you were accused of, you know, um, stirring it in terms of bringing up something as emotional as the family farm and stuff. I think well, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing, well, I mean, okay, the family farm is emotional for farmers. Where I come from in Dublin, the family farm is the same as a family business. Mm-hmm. But, 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 I mean, um, but the point I'm making to you, Fran, is this, that if you say that durable relationships are to be accorded the same status as... Um, um, families are based on marriage. If that's what you're going to do, you are inevitably going to uh, run into people saying, um, I object to the state um, uh, uh, not giving me uh, the same rights uh, to the uh, um, assets of, of, of the people involved, in other words, the business or the farm, uh, uh, as if I was married. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in this fundamental uh, unit group of society. It is stated uh, to be a moral institution, and um, I, I'm being discriminated against. And Roderick O'Gorman actually, in the Senate, said that uh, he was against um, uh, leaving it to the Iraqis to decide what was and was not a durable relationship. Because, and, and he gave us his excuse that he didn't want any differential approach um, but, um, between. Yeah people who are uh, in families which will be recognised in the future. Can, can I ask you about carers? Because we've heard from several of them on, on the programme, Senator. Um, they're advocating a yes vote largely. And while they have reservations, their point is that the invisible work of carers will finally be recognised. And according to the government, then, they'll be able to hold the government to account if a yes vote is the result of this. Well, what do you say to that? Well, well, that, that frankly, that's, well, I'd say a number of things, Fran. Number one, um, uh, carers, um, my colleague, Senator Tom Clonan, who's a great uh, advocate for, for uh, disabled people and, and carers of disabled people, has roundly condemned um, the, the amendment. Um, at least two carers organisations have come out against the wording, and the Irish Council for Civil Liberties has condemned the wording as well. And the reason is, uh, as far as they're concerned, this is putting in a new part into the fundamental rights chapter of our constitution. But it is, is in effect, um, conferring no rights whatsoever. It talks about the state striving to do things. But I can't go into court and say, excuse me, uh, you're not striving enough. You're spending too much money on, say, um, sports grounds and not spending enough on family on family. Uh, uh, provided care. Um, there isn't a right for the courts. We have a separation of power system and there isn't a right for the courts to, to uh, direct the government to, to um, do anything in particular in relation to care. And therefore, if you or I, Fran, um, felt that uh, they, they aren't doing enough, we can't start an action to compel um, the Minister for Finance or the Iraqis to put more money into family care. What did you make of uh, Sinn Féin, Mary Lou Macdonald, coming coming out to say they would rerun the referendums in the event of a no vote? Now, I presume, obviously, based on a, a change of wording, but what, what did you make of that? Well, I, I, I was astonished by that, to be honest with you. I mean, um, they, they said they were in, fa- in favour of, of voting, yes, but that the wording was so defective that they would have another referendum as soon as they got, got into office to change it. That's not the way to do business. And can I make this point to you, Fran? 
the, the wording which we are being given or offered for these amendments was not recommended by the Citizens' Assembly, was not recommended by the um, by an Oireachtas committee which looked at this issue some time ago. Um, it was wording which was cobbled together, as I said earlier, by the government uh, um, in a process that we, we cannot see why they arrived at the words they did. But um, they came to the Doyle and the Shannon, and, um, you know, in each of those houses, there were 15 or so amendments. They gave each house uh, three hours to consider all the amendments and brought the uh, debate to a close without votes of those amendments by uh, what's called a guillotine mm. motion, mm. which said that the, 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 the bill is passed each house and deemed to have been passed each house, and um, all amendments um, are, are, are thrown in the, in the waste paper basket. That's not the way to change a, a constitution. And we, we didn't have pre-legislative scrutiny, which would involve bringing in people from, say, uh, the Department of Finance and saying, what are the implications of um, uh, according um, married people's tax uh, um, uh, regime to people in, in, in durable relationships? Um, what, what are the consequences for pensions law? Bringing in people from the Department of Justice to deal with the question of, um, you know, if people are in durable relationships, will you be able to deport them? Whereas, uh, you know, we, we changed the law some time back to um, to uh, um, stop bogus marriages. You have to give notice in advance of a marriage. But now people will claim that, uh, that they're in a durable relationship and there's uh, a couple of yeah. years delay in court. So that's the kind of um, thing that could have been dealt with if there had been a proper debate in, in, in the door of the Senate. But can- instead, instead, they said, after three hours, all amendments are scrapped and we're ploughing ahead. Can I just finally ask you about John O'Mara, because John has been a guest on on the programme um, several times, and that Supreme Court ruling that um, uh, the exclusion of bereaved unmarried father of three from the widower's uh, contributory pension scheme was unconstitutional. Do you think that that plays a part and that almost makes... The, did I gather from you that almost makes the referendum unnecessary in some ways? Well, well um, it, it, it shows two things. It shows that the um, equality provisions of the Constitution and the children section uh, of the Constitution gave to Mr. O'Mara uh, uh, um, the basis for making a claim that um, although uh, his, late, his late partner, who didn't want to be married and refused to go through marriage because she had, uh, I think she had, back, uh, um, her parents' marriage had been un- 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 unfortunate, um, that, uh, that, he, that he should not be discriminated against as regards social welfare entitlements for himself and his and his children, uh, and it, do, it does not need, it did not need um, a, any amendment of the constitution to bring that about. Um, he was. They said uh, that the social welfare law, which um, denied him uh, what his next door neighbour in exactly the same circumstances with uh, who had got married, um, would would be entitled to was an invidious discrimination which was not um, which was not permissible under the equality provisions of the constitution that proves uh, that proves two things number one it proves that um, any unfair inequalities um, suffered by people because they are not considered a family can be remedied by the court and second and secondly it proves that the state which will be the case post omar will have to amend the law 
and have to, um, um, by an ordinary st- an ordinary bill, an act of Parliament, uh, accommodate Mr O'Malley. All right, I must leave it there, but Senator McDowell, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very, very much. much. Thank you, thank you. Good morning to you. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, fuck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, fuck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat, and uh, you're very welcome back to uh, Tip Today, 1800 A big reaction uh, to Senator Michael McDowell on uh, the programme and yeah I could have spoken to him for an awful lot longer but we had constraints of of time but I'm sure we will be speaking to him again in uh, the future uh, 1800 as I say and uh, the text and whatsapp is only 33113311 you can email tip today at tipfm.com now with a push towards more inclusive work environments are older white men being pushed out now that's the view of David Quinn who wrote a piece for the Sunday Indo over the weekend uh, highlighting how many organisations now have diversity targets and want to attract more women and people of uh, colour he argues that older white men or the pale stale male as he calls them, are now under attack because they are not a protected minority. Well, Dave joins me on this. Good morning to you, Dave. Sorry, Brian. And good to talk to you today. Um, are you pale, stale, male, Dave? I'm Irish, so I mean, being pale is in my DNA, isn't it? <laughs> it is It is indeed, yeah. And what about the notion that, you know, there's discrimination now against people who are whites and straights and... Uh, yeah, I was finding that funny when you hear. I heard a, I was talking to a guy one time, and he said, "He goes, what's the most endangered animal in the world was." And I was thinking, "Is it the African black rhino?" No, and he goes, "No, it's a straight white man." I nearly died laughing. I mean, yeah. really? I mean, like we live in a predominantly white country. I mean, think of it this way: white people, we make up what ten percent of the world's population. Yet the ten richest men in the world are white. The best economies in the world belong to white people. The most modernized societies in the world are also white. Are we really that persecuted? Really? When you think of us? You so, know? so you, you think that pale, stale males are not persecuted? Is that, is that what uh, you're saying? Sure, look, I mean, look, guys like David Quinn, no offence to the guy or anything, right? I mean, he's the head of the Iona I own Institute. He's mm. one of these people who has this persecution complex going on because we don't live under the yoke of the Catholic Church anymore. Mm. I mean, if it was up to people like him, we wouldn't have gay marriage. We wouldn't have abortion women will probably still be in the home and the Catholic Church would still rule Ireland with an iron fist, you know. And it's it's very obvious, if you've ever heard a guy talk, that he wants to return to that. He's the same as Vladimir Putin wants to return to the, to the uh, Soviet Union. Um, well, I'm like, sure, I'm I, sure I, he would disagree with you on that. We've had him on the programme several times. Um, he, he makes an interesting point, though. He's talking about the Royal Air Force, for example. And they have diversity targets at the moment, and therefore they're reluctant to recruit any more white men. Uh, wants to attract yeah, more no, women I'm, and people of colour. And you know, it's one thing I probably will agree with him on. Um, if you want someone going into a job, albeit a doctor, um, a fighter jet pilot, or uh, an accountant, mm. you want the best person for the job. You don't want to be beholden to quotas. You know, you can't say, "Geez, I mean, we have a bunch of white guys here." And this candidate is probably the best candidate we've seen in years, but we can't hire him because he's white. But we'll take this guy here whose performance is kind of subpar, but we have to take him on yeah. because a piece of paper says it. No, I, 
I disagree vehemently with stuff like that. I really do. Like, I mean, you should have the best person from the job, regardless of race, color, or creed. You know, I'm, I mean, you know, it'd be nice if you made it a more um, attractive workplace so you could, you know, so people of their own volition would like to work in those fields. You know, I yeah, mean... I, I think that his piece um, emerged from the comments by, was it the Fine Gael MEP, Maria Walsh, where she thinks that election candidates... Uh, in Fianna Fáil particularly and uh, that's how she described them as male, pale and stale and she was talking about Barry Cowan and Billy Keller and in fact is it Barry Andrews she was referring to as well I think. So I mean does she not have a point to some degree in that those three individuals are they representative of their constituencies now when their constituencies are so diverse I suppose? Look, to be fair, uh, I mean Irish politics, look Irish society in general is still very classic um, no, we've come a long way in the last few decades, but classism is still a big thing, and Irish politics is still very much an all-boys club. Mm. But we do have some female politicians who are absolute dynamite. I mean, Mary Lou, I might not agree with Sinn Féin's stances, but she can hold her own. Yeah. I mean, Mary Robinson was a fantastic president. Um, there's a, I, I can't think of her name. There's a, um, is she an independent candidate from somewhere above an offy? I, I watch her tear strips out of... Um, government ministers online a few times. Is so that Deputy Nolan, do, I think you're talking about, is it? Yeah. I, I think, is it? She yeah. She went, um, uh, who's the the minister again? What's his name? Uh, Starface, close on him. Um, but anyway, but she tore absolute strips out of all of them, and she's well able to hold, to hold mm. her own. I mean, yeah. if women get into politics, uh, like I, I don't really see Irish society nowadays being, I'm not going to vote for her because she's a woman. I, I really don't see that in, in people nowadays. I what I see in people is who's going to represent me the most. Well, actually, no, it's still all parish politics. So it's who's going to scratch my back the better, really. You know, and and we, do, you think that's still, do you think that's still alive and well? I, I think to a certain degree. Maybe not as much as it once was. But, like, I, I mean, I when I hear people like that lady go on, what it seems to me is this American culture wars nonsense. Hmm. You know, where it's like... Everybody has to be put in a camp, either you're left wing or right wing. If you're if you're a black person, you're oppressed. If you're a white person, you're an oppressor. I mean, mm. I was told before that I have like white privilege. Mm. I live in rural Ireland. It's predominantly white, not because we hate people of color, but just because most people who live here are white. And trust me, I am not a privileged person. But unfortunately, due to the advent of social media and tribalism is still a big thing. Well, are, are you not arguing against yourself there then to some degree, Dave? Because, you know, just the very fact that you are male and white, um, you know, it's an indication of, of privilege even if you're not a multimillionaire. But, but it's, it's not, though, because, I mean, I have a friend who's half Puerto Rican and he's had all the exact same opportunities that I've had in life. You know, he's, he's never been looked down upon... Um, because his skin is a slightly darker shade of brown than mine. You know, when people are talking about white privilege, what they mean is the white guy is going to do better because it's systemic racism. Like, mm. we don't really have systemic racism in Irish society because we've mostly, you know, for most of our history, we've been a white nation. Systemic racism comes from countries like America where, you know, people had to fight hard, you know, during the civil rights marches and stuff like that. We haven't had that. I mean, look, yeah, we probably do. Have we time. haven't, but is it not fair to say, Dave, that we haven't been tested until recent years in terms of our attitudes to other no, races? No, we haven't. Yeah. No, we haven't. And look, there is like, 
you know, there is a bit of, um, how do you say it? Like, I wouldn't say, like, look, yes, there is racism in Ireland. There's racism everywhere. You go to black countries, they're racist. You try to be a black person in an Asian country, you see a lot more racism than what a black person might see in an Irish country. I mean, to be fair, from we're one of the, the most, you know, caring, giving nations on the face of the planet. And, like, in recent times, you can probably see an uptake and stuff like that, but that's not due to people being racist. That's due to demographics being shifted in a very, very fast manner. And people don't have time to, to kind of, you know, reconcile with that. And then you do have a lot of misinformation on social media. I mean, when people are pissed off now, they're not saying, I hate black, you know, all these black people coming into the country. They're saying, I hate the fact that our country is being flooded with people that we don't have the infrastructure to take care of. And the rural Ireland in particular, I moved out to rural Ireland 23 years ago. And I can tell you right now, um, the attitudes towards people from not from rural Ireland in the last 20 years have changed dramatically, even in regards to people with special needs or people from different countries. I mean, look at, like, the Chinese. I mean, you know, like, they, they integrated into the Irish society fantastically. Mm. You know, mm. every town in Ireland has multiple Chinese restaurants. Mm. You don't hear of, you know, hate crimes against Chinese people, do you? you? You don't, but I think it's because the numbers were so gradual that it was easy enough to integrate into communities. You know, but when you impose a few hundred people on a small community, then you have an issue. Then you have a problem. No, of course. But see, the narrative from the people in power or from certain aspects of the media is everybody who has an issue with this is a racist because yeah. they hate black people. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, they're, they're trying to boil it down to make it such a simple black and white thing. And it's not. It's a massively complex, massively... It's a multifaceted problem. People aren't pissed off because there's people from other countries coming here. Yeah. People are pissed off because... You can't get a GP because there's some parts of the country where if you want to get your child into a school, it's on a lottery basis. I mean, my, my youngest friend, he's just over two now. Uh, we put his name in for school place when he was a month old because we had to because places are so limited. When my oldest fellow was, you know, my oldest fellow is 14 now. When he was younger, you could have nearly gone up to school a, a month, a couple or even six months yeah. before and said, yeah. I need to put him in school and it wouldn't have been a problem. It isn't because of racism. People just want to say it's because of racism. Because they just want to shut down the arguments. And yeah. Well, well I mean, off. you know, we provided a platform, I suppose, for, for people to, to express those views in the past, Dave. And I mean, I was lambasted on social media and saying that I was promoting racism, oh, yeah. doing all sorts of stuff, you know. But anyway, look, there oh. you are. Good to, good to talk to you, Dave. And thanks for your time this morning. Excellent contribution, as always. Thank you so much. Thank you and good morning. Uh, let's go to Pat. Pat, how are you? Hello, Brian. How are you? Are you pale, stale and male, Pat? Oh, Lord save us. Yes, I presume I am, but the thing about it was I thought it was a very derogatory remark made by Maria Welsh uh, in her argument uh, because there was no female uh, picked or whatever the case may be selected to represent. Yes, and uh, not, not uh, just female. I think she was referring to other diversity as well. But, well, she was. Yeah. Now, that's the, that's the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm in my elder years, I'll put it that way to you. Uh, in the twilight years of my life, I'll put it that way to you. And, uh, in, but in today's society, the phrase pale male and stale is often used to describe a certain demographic that holds power and influence in various industries and institutions. And this term is often associated with older white men who may mm. be seen as out of touch or resistance to change. You know, I'm an older white man, and I'm not resistant to change. Mm. Uh, I think change is good. I went through the university of life. Mm. I've seen what, thing is, what it's all about. And my opinion, I think, counts. Just because I'm old uh, uh, and maybe drawing the pension or whatever the case may be, that my opinion doesn't matter. You know, 
And, and Prime Minister Patton to acknowledge and address issues of inequality and lack of diversity in positions of power is also essential to approach the topic with empathy and understanding, which I don't think that when you make a statement like that, you don't have empathy and you don't have understanding. You know? And what do you um, make, particularly with your life experience, Pat, what, what do you make of something like the Royal Air Force, for instance, that they're reluctant to attract white people anymore because of their diversity targets that try to attract more women, more people of colour instead? So it's a, what does that say? That's positive discrimination. Is that, is that what they say it is? Yeah. It, it, it was also mentioned in that article that, that who flew the Spitfires in, 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 in the Second World War? It was men. Right, and then white men. Yeah. Englishmen and American men that flew the Spitfires, that, that, that flew into Germany and to counteract the, the, the right, as we call it. Mm. You know? So, like, I, I, I'm, I don't know what that is. It, it could be taken up in a different context. You know, I haven't the proof, and I don't think, I don't know whether David Quinn had the proof that that was actually in writing, that that's what they were looking for. Maybe it was. Mm. I do think that... that it, it was a leaked email, I understand. A leaked from, email or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, but a leaked email is... Look... Anybody can write an email, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that we go back to to age, which is which is what you were saying, pale, you know, and we're male. So that's ageism and sexism, and they are very real issues that impact individuals of all backgrounds. Should yeah. be addressed with sensitivity and respect. That's my opinion on it. Um, so yeah. instead of resorting to derogatory terms like pale, male, and stale, we should focus on promoting inclusivity and diversity in all aspects of society. Like. If you go through the University of Life, and you're going through it at the moment, Frank, mm, yeah. you're not younger than me, you're going through it. But the, inf- the information and the knowledge that you have picked up from the time that you were uh, uh, 14, 15 years of age is important and is vital. You know, uh, my my only problem with this University of Life in recent times is you can't have a proper discussion about anything unless it conforms to the single narrative that's that's out there. Otherwise, you're branded as all sorts of stuff. Yeah, you're branded as as ageist. You're branded as sexist. You're branded as racist. Yeah, you know, so like uh, that's that that particular term now is paying male and male is ageist, sexist, racist, because male. And we just take, for example, those three people that were selected. They were selected democratically. Yes. So what does Maria Walsh want with one or two of them? One of them resigns and says, we pick a woman instead. They did a woman go in that constituency. Right? Well, but of course, already, I mean, there there are gender quotas out there for political parties. So that that's that's there already, Pat, you know? I know it is there already, and it is there. And the thing about it is, if, you know, politics is a very, very difficult time to be, uh, sorry, to be in politics now is very, very difficult because your, your private life is wide open for, for question, questions as, and even going back into your past. And any woman that puts, or any, sorry, I should say, any, any person that puts their name forward for, for election, I think are brave, right, to do so. Uh, if they're elected then, suddenly they're, 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 they're lambasted because of, it's free game to, 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 to what they call it, take out a politician, either by slander or whatever the case yeah. may be. I know we have the laws that are out there now, but it is a tough time. And maybe people are afraid to go forward. You know? Yeah, and, so, and, and I can understand that too, because every aspect of your life is under scrutiny. And if you wrote, uh, if you wrote a text like 10 or 12 years ago, it can be brought up against you. Uh, you know, yes, what's absolutely. Yeah. I'll Pat, tell you, before I, before I finish with your yes, phone, Pat, I, I, yeah. I, I just wrote a little ditty. Did you? Good. I did. And, and it is about the pale male and stale. And you can listen to it. There's about 
three paragraphs to it. It's very short, I'll put it that way to you. But it is just, it may be taken into context of what I'm speaking about, mm. you know. So, right, I'll go Love ahead. Love to hear it. Yes, Pat. Stale, male and pale, they say with a sneer, as if being white and male is something to fear. But hey, I may be a bit past my prime, but I can, I can still crack a joke and have a good time. Sure, I may not be as hip or as cool, but I still got some tricks up my sleeve. Don't be a fool. I may not be the trendiest guy in the room, but I can still make you laugh, fix, t- fix things and chase away the gloom. So go ahead and call me Dale, male and pale. But I'll just shrug it off and, say, and set sail. I may not fit your idea of what's in style, but I'll keep on laughing and living with a smile. <laughs> well done, Pat. Well done. And thank you for doing that for us today. Thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. Pat, you look after yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye thank to you. Very you. Much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That, that's a poet and contributor. Uh, Pat speaking to us there. All right, we'll take a break. Back in just a moment. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Oh, you're very welcome back to uh, Tip Today. Now, huge response to Dave and Pat uh, speaking to me uh, this morning. So we will uh, bring you that reaction either later on in the programme or indeed we might go back to male, pale and stale tomorrow on the programme. But right now, something completely different because five transition year students from the Loretto in Clonmel, they've made it to the national finals of the worldwide STEM Formula One competition. And I'm delighted to say that uh, the five young ladies are with me in studios. So we have Shauna, Molly, we have Kira, we have Emily and Rachel as well. So you're all very welcome. Thank you for coming in to us. Thank you. Thank you. Molly, you've been sort of elected as uh, the first spokesperson. Will you tell me what this is all about? Because I don't fully understand it. Yeah, so we are Team Apex. We're a Formula One in Schools team from Loretto Clonmel. Um, Formula One in Schools is a worldwide STEM competition and we are tasked to de- design and build a 20 centimetre race car using a CNC machine and a 3D printer. Um, it runs on compressed gas cylinders and it races along a 20 metre race course. Wow, it sounds very exciting indeed. And before this, are you into cars and Formula One, by the way, or any of that? Um, I had a bit of an interest in engineering and I guess we all just kind of came together as a group and yeah. were interested uh, in the And project. when you refer to STEM, you talk about science, technology, engineering and, 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 and maths. maths. Yeah. And of course, there's a great push now to have young women in particular involved yeah, yeah, in STEM, very... STEM subjects. Yeah. Uh, Shauna, will you tell me about uh, your part in this? Yes, so I'm the graphic designer. I have the important role of designing our logo, our merchandise and everything needed in our future pit display and kits. All right, very good. How much time did that soak up? Um, it was our first good few weeks. Was it indeed? Yeah. 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 Okay. And did you get enjoyment out of it or was it a bit of a chore? Yeah, I do enjoy it. I like art, so I like the designing part of it. Very good. Is that something you're going to look at going forward? Yes, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. She has no doubt about that uh, whatsoever. Um, all right, Kira, what about your part in this, Kira? Uh, I'm the graphic engineer and I oversee the design of our car along with our manufacturing engineer, Emily, and our scrutineer, Cloda. I make the overall decision on where our sponsors' logos go on the car and what colours to use. Right, very good. Talk to me about sponsors because you do have sponsors, do you? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we have two sponsors now. We also have to find 
Two general sponsors are Mex Sharpa and Erdome MSD and Energy 2 Transition. We have worked closely with both businesses and they've given us a lot of help and support. Right, very good indeed. Emily, what what was uh, Kira referring to there? You're, you're looking after what, what aspect of this? Um, I'm the manufacturing engineer and I'm in charge of engineering the car and I work closely with Cloda and Kira on building and designing our car. Right. How, where do you even begin for, for something like this? Um, we were lucky to have our tech graphics teacher show us the basis of how to design a Formula One car on Onshape. That's our CAD software. And then we're kind of, we're looking up ways to make our car like faster and like more streamlined. And what do, what do you look to there? Do you look to aerodynamics and yeah. the engine capacity and all yeah, of that? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And will there be an actual engine in this thing? No, it's a cr- compressed gas cylinder. So they're going to be cut and it's going to shoot the car along the track. Wow, okay. Uh, Rachel, what about you? What one aspect um, of it? So I'm the team manager of the team and I pretty much just ensure that the whole team runs smoothly. Um, I'm also the resource manager, so I oversee all the purchasing and I contact all of our sponsors. So um, basically I'm like the main contact towards all of the people that we're trying to buy all of our materials from. Very good. And before this, had you any interest in Formula One or in cars or in any of that? Uh, yeah, I really do enjoy cars. I didn't really watch Formula One, but when the competition came in, um, in our team's group chat from our TY teacher, we kind of were just like, this is an opportunity for us to take. It's our TY year. And, you know, I recruited all the team. It took a while. But I was going to ask was you about good. that. Was it like, uh, well, you wouldn't remember the movie The Magnificent Seven, but I mean, that idea of recruiting the best um, for your team. How, how difficult was that? Um, it was quite difficult because it, it was kind of hard to get girls kind of interested in the cars. But I definitely picked the best and brightest that we have on our team here. They all kind of showed an interest and, you know, they all really help out really well. We also have another member of our team. Her name's Claude. She's not with us today, but she also helps a lot. And all together, we, we make a good team. Very good indeed. And uh, can I go back to you just on what you're doing, Emily? Um, the, the notion of studying STEMs, uh, you know, is, is that something yeah. that's close to your heart? Ah, uh, Yes, definitely. I'd love to look into engineering as a future career. Wow, which is fantastic altogether. Have you already looked at the possibilities of that? Yeah, just briefly, like TY, we can look into it. It's a good opportunity for us. And this competition is really good to kind of get a dip our toe into little aspects of engineering. Very good. Where would you study engineering in this country now? Where where Um, would you be looking to? A lot of colleges would. But um, SETU is definitely a good college. But a lot of colleges have engineering courses. Well, and Kira, what about you with STEM? I mean, is that something that interests you going going forward? Also interested in doing an engineering route. Like, I don't know. I just think I really like science and maths, and I think I'm quite good at it. So I definitely prefer to go down that way. Very good indeed, Molly. Where you're concerned again, future study? You'd you'd look to these subjects. Yeah, I'm thinking of biomedical engineering. So it's quite interesting. God, I feel so dumb here among you. <laughs> and I know that already you've told us, Shona, that, that you're interested in, in, in pursuing this. So who can explain the concept of 3D printing to? Uh, we were talking about pale, male and stale earlier on, and that would certainly describe me. Who, who can describe that principle to me? Of Because you, you're, you're 3D printing the car. Is, is that correct, Rachel? Uh, yeah, so basically for the competition regulations, um, we have to build the main body of our car out of a CNC machine, a uh, computer numerical control. 
But for everything else, we're planning on 3D printing it. So from our sponsors, Mark Sharp and Dome and CPAM, they've been really helping us with the engineering part as we have good access to the 3D printers there. So um, our team, we're trying to reach net zero uh, as, as it's a big aspect of Formula One nowadays. And so basically what we're trying to do is kind of cut back on using all of our products and make sure that it's the best that we can make them for the environment. So you only get one shot at the CNC machine. So what we plan to do is design our car, make it on a 3D machine, test it that way and just fix the parts that are broken rather than making a whole new car. Very good. And when will you see the prototype then? When when will you have a look at that? Um, well, it depends on how long it takes us to design the car, but it'll take around four weeks. Um, we send it off to UL from the company. We get one kind of go to make our final design and that's when we kind of plan on making our car. I think it's fantastic. So just give me the dates then, if you would, Molly. I mean, you know, when, when, yeah. when is what is your next step, I suppose? Um, so in the next few weeks, we're looking at finishing the design on our car and just pushing forward on social media. And then our national final is held in UL in the start of early June, really. All right, very good. So yeah. great excitement uh, about that. What about transition years, Shauna? Are you impressed? Is it, is it all you were hoping that it might be? Yeah, we have loads of opportunities and this have is you? one of the best ones. And is this soaking up most of your time or have you other projects on as well? No, we have a lot of other things happening as well. So trying to fit in everything. Yeah, what about you on that, Rachel? Uh, transition year, is it all you, you hoped it to be? Or, or is it a big DOS, like people told um, me over the years? It's definitely not a DOS, <laughs> but I definitely think whatever you push in, you get out of it. Like a lot of us, we've, we're also doing other things. You know, Loretta Clamel, they're doing a really good job of giving us different programmes. Like yesterday, we were off on leash doing this whole programme about eco and kind of garden centres and how to run businesses. So we're definitely getting a wide variety of different things that we get to do, and it's great. Yeah, Emily, are you glad you've, you've decided on transition year? Oh, big time, because there's a lot of stuff that's going to help us moving forward in school and work experience as well. We get to test out different career paths and kind of figure out what we like and what we don't like. Yeah, what about you, Kira? Are you an advocate for transition year? Oh, definitely. It's like, it's definitely a big break from doing like harsh subjects and you get to kind of go out and explore career opportunities instead of in school doing your work or whatever. Yeah, very good indeed. Well, one of our listeners wondering, can people follow your progress online in the competition? Is there a way to do that, right? Yeah, so we have a TikTok and Instagram page that we've been currently updating. It's at Apex underscore Racing TUI. And we just kind of post all about our progression and our team and how we've come to where we've come, I suppose. Right, uh, well said. Uh, I, I'm, I'm told because I would know the Formula One pre-season testing is currently underway. Do, will any of you be following that now because of what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. Oh, right, yeah. okay. Yeah, we all have an interest, so we should be. Okay. You better give a shout out to the teachers again and who's involved. In yeah, this. so basically our tech graph teacher, he's kind of like the main thing. Um, it's Mr. Ger Walsh. Um, we don't actually have tech graph as TYs, so we're definitely far behind than what other people might be, but we're definitely getting the best shot that we can get. Um, we're working closely with some of our science teachers, like Mr. Ket, with the physics of our aerodynamics. And of course, our TY coordinator, who is just helping us with everything, Ms. Michelle Cullerton, they're really helping us. She even drove us here today. It was great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, well done to you all. And you're all brilliant. And we wish you the very, very best. And thanks Thank you. to uh, Shauna, to Molly, to Kira, to Emily, and uh, to Rachel for coming in to us today from the Loretto in Clamell. All right. We'll take a break. Join the conversation in Tipperary. 
Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, although we're only a couple of months into the brand new year, many of us are ready for a holiday already, moi included in that. But with so many options and destinations and pricing and all of that, it can be hard to know um, which one to pick. Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by travel expert, and that's uh, Nadia Ferdusi of the Daily Self.me. Nadia, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well indeed. Lovely to talk to you uh, today. It is true to say that there's so much choice out there now. It can be difficult to make a decision. There really is. And you know what? The way we have searched for holidays has actually changed recently, you know, over the last few years. People are looking to social media a lot more to to see videos, to see Mm. what places really look like and to get the kind of vibe of what a place is like because it is overwhelming. It certainly is indeed. And people are going on holiday not just to lounge in the sun, but to, I mean, they might be activity holidays. Or as you pointed out yourself, I mean, uh, Formula One is up and running at the moment. That might be an option for people, for instance. Absolutely. I myself went over to Austin, Texas last year to watch the race there. Um, and there, there's Formula One races all over the world. But like sporting events or different adventures activities, you know, you don't just want to go on a two-week sun holiday anymore. There's so much options out there. What about organising your holiday, though? I'm I'm, I'm always very careful of doing it myself because I'm always afraid I'll mess something up really badly (laughs) or or get involved in some sort of a scam. So I tend to go to my local travel agent. Uh, I know I'm paying a little extra, but at least they'll do everything for me and I know pretty much that it's going to uh, be okay. What, What is your experience of that, Nadia? Well, yeah, absolutely. If you are going on a sun holiday abroad, you know, you have that extra bit of safety if you book with registered travel agents. So that is a good choice. But a lot of people are choosing to stay at home now and, and forego the flights entirely and, and not spend money on flights and stay in Ireland. Um, and, you know, a, a place that people you don't really think about as much is Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And once you go on to tours on Northern Ireland's website or discover Northern Ireland, they have an activity planner there. They have an itinerary builder. And you can use those things to help you plan your holiday and just make it a little bit easier. And then also, you're driving. You don't have to think about the flights in the airport and delays and cancellations and luggage and all of that. There, there was a time, of course, where, you know, many people from the South wouldn't have dreamt of going to Northern Ireland for a holiday. But it seems it's on the uh, on the pickup at the moment because I know some relations of my own were there and just spoke about the joys of it and what a wonderful uh, place it is and so many options there as well. There's so many options there. It's really changed, like you said, over the past five or ten years. I, I, every time I go up there, which is quite often, I feel like people are genuinely happy to welcome you. Like, the spirit is just gorgeous. So, it depends on what kind of vibe you, you want. If you want to go for a relaxing by the lakes in Fermanagh, or if you want a city break in Belfast where there's nice nightlife and good food, or up to the Causeway Coast, and it's absolutely stunning. You feel like you're on the edge of the world up there. Um, so there's loads of different options and great value for money as well. Would you advise people, though, to look outside of uh, Belfast? Because, again, we hear about all the various uh, experiences there, like the Titanic, etc. Um, but there are other experiences that we could indulge in, I suppose. Yeah, of course. If you want a city, Derry is a really great one to, go, to visit. Um, or... Me personally, I love hiking, so I would mm. tend to go to Newcastle and County Down quite a lot and then hike in the Mourne Mountains. And they're absolutely stunning. There's the lakes and you're right beside the sea as well. And you've gorgeous hotel there that's just um, been refurbished, Steve Donard. So just outside of Belfast, yeah, there's plenty more to see.
Talk to me about other options. And I mean, I really have a, a dream for many years. I'd love to hire some sort of a, a, I don't know, maybe a vintage car, a sports car or something, and drive right across Europe. Um, is that something you'd advise as a holiday? Because I'd love to do it just on the fly and maybe pick up accommodation along the way and all of that. Well, if you're on your own, yeah, absolutely. Or if you're with one other person, maybe that's as equally as laid back as you. Mm. Um, but I've seen people planning their, their road trips and actually mentioning Formula One. You know, if you want to go to, say, like the Ferrari uh, factory and Monza and different places around Italy, that's a really good opportunity to do a nice road trip over there. But yeah, it depends on if, I'm I'm relaxed like that. I would mind booking my accommodation as I go, but some people do prefer to book in advance. And when you are driving, it can put a bit of pressure because you know there could be delays. You don't know. You could be tired. You don't want to drive so much one day or the other. But if you had a camper van and you can stay in that, the, the facilities in Europe are amazing. Whenever I go on holiday and I meet other people who are in the same hotel or whatever, I always discover I've overpaid by a lot of money. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what that says about me, but what about what about budgeting and the like and making sure we get a good deal, Nadia? You really want to be booking in advance if you want to get the good deal or very, very last minute. So, um, But it's a risk to go last minute. So trying to plan a little bit in advance. Uh, midweek travel is often going to be cheaper and travelling off-season if you can, you know, if you're not trying to do it in the school holidays. And then when you're away, searching for free things to do as well, you know, so gorgeous nature, walks and stuff like that, that isn't going to add more to the budget. Yeah, the, it was a demon for us for many years because, of course, with, with kids, you had to uh, go during the school holidays and therefore it was much more expensive. Yeah, exactly. And it still is the way, unfortunately, that's just the way it is with flights. You know, so then, and, and accommodation, of course, as well. So to avoid the flight thing, if you have to go in the school holidays, stick within Ireland. Um, but we still are paying a bit more for um, accommodation. But like I said, back in Northern Ireland, you get really good value for money. In Belfast, you're looking at from £105 for two people sharing a night. Um, what about where, I mean, I love my food, God knows, I love my wine. Uh, you're very <laughs> widely travelled. Where, where would you advise somebody like moi to go to? Well, for food and wine, any destination that, that makes wine also has good food because it's farming, of course. So, um, like, the obvious ones would be France, Italy and Spain, but there's there's other places as well. Like, last year I went to Madeira. Um, so it's a Portuguese island, but it feels very much like a Canary Island because it's out in the Atlantic, basically. Um, and, and they produce wine there as well, and it's really interesting. It's a really cool food and wine destination. Um, or if you wanted to go further afield, my favourite place is... South Africa for food and wine. Um, they've incredible food and the wine is amazing. And we don't really get that much of it here in Ireland. It sounds wonderful. You were speaking uh, a number of times there about uh, tourism in Northern Ireland. Um, what is this thing about the vibe check-in? Will you explain that to me? I will, yes. Yeah. So over the past couple of years, um, people have been reviewing hotels and using the word vibe a lot more. And they have been searching for different vibes. For example, I want a relaxed vibe. I want a more lively vibe, outdoors adventures. It's a sense. It's a feel of a place. It's something that's always been there, but we're really just putting a name on it now. Mm. And, and what is it like? The atmosphere over. of a place, or exactly. Yeah. That's exactly okay. what it is. So, right. um, yeah. So, and, and your mood can change depending on what you want or who you're going with or what time of year. So it's just a new trend, really, in the way that we search for our holidays. It's very interesting. Well, it was great to, to talk to you. You certainly whetted my appetite now to uh, have a little break somewhere. Good to talk to you, Nadia. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. a million. Good, good morning to you. Bye-bye. That's uh, Nadia.
El Ducey there speaking to us and uh, she has that uh, web um, a website. It's the dailyself.me if you want to have a look at uh, that. Uh, Patrick was on to say, good God, Fran, uh, there's no hope for me. I'm definitely pale male and <laughs> very stale, says uh, our Patrick today. Um, Joe says, what about the other 156 genders that might like to join the Air Force? Um, somebody's saying, get that person off the radio. This is referring, I think, to my conversation with Dave. Get that person off the radio. A disgrace. Promoting abortion. The killing of an innocent baby is evil. And I'm ripping here over it. Now, in fairness, I I don't think, uh, you know, looking at our conversation in any way was Dave promoting abortion. I think in the course of our conversation, he referred to the referendum and the democratic process around that, and I suppose the democratic results around that. But you couldn't, in fairness to him, you couldn't say that he was promoting um, abortion. Uh, Rosemary, yes, I'll ask Muriel about that. No problem whatsoever. Joe Interlis says, I think Dublin bus are discriminating on a massive scale and uh, they're breaking the equal opportunity rules by their latest push to employ female drivers. I wonder, I wonder about that. Is that because it's just very, very hard to get drivers in the first place and they're trying to encourage female drivers who mightn't look at that as an option for employment? Maybe I'm reading that wrong, Joe. Maybe I'm completely reading it. And again, a lot of people on to us about the interview with Michael McDowell today. And thank you for that. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Pat, and uh, welcome back to the final hour of uh, Tip Today. It's time now for our health slot, and I'm glad to be joined in the studio as usual on a Thursday by uh, Muriel Cuddy, uh, CEO of Marito 8020, the clinic in Clonmel. Good morning to you, Muriel. Morning, Fran. Do you know, before we even start, I have a question for you from Rosemary, and she's wondering, would I ask Muriel straight away, how many litres of water is recommended? Can you do that quickly well, for me? Well, it completely all depends on your size, of course, and it all depends on the activity level that you have every day. So, for women, we normally recommend about two litres. For men, you can go to two and a half, three litres. But of course, it depends, like, how busy you are, you know, what size your body is well, and everything. Be, but two litres. You'd be very litres. busy in the bathroom, I'd imagine. Three, three litres. Wow. Eight glasses of water. But again, it depends. Gut-related, with the piece I go back to all the, yeah. all the time, you shouldn't be busy in the bathroom because your body should be able to retain the two litres of water. Like, a certain oh. amount, yes, comes out, but that's the waste piece. But 70% of our body is water. So why aren't we retaining it? So oh. I deal with this every day in relation to the dehydration piece. People will say, I'm drinking two litres of water, Muriel, but they're still showing up as, as being dehydrated. So, like, if it's going in and coming straight back out again... It's, it's another issue. Yeah, right. and, like, electrolyte okay. imbalance and all that kind right. of thing. Uh, For this girl, two litres. Right, and uh, we better not get into that no, no, today no, no, because we've all the stuff to... Tell me yeah. about the reaction to last week because we spoke about um, irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. Um, you got a huge reaction. We got, listen, I, I think in the space of 12 hours, there was definitely, I'd say, 40 calls in less, probably six to eight hours, but I didn't have time to answer them and get back to them all in the, in the time scale. So many people rang. So many people said the education, the informative side of it resonated with them. So why, they why did it resonate so much? 
I think we don't realise that there are these, um, what would you say, diseases or syndromes or whatever out there, and conditions, yeah. whatever you'd like to call them, that are affecting us. You, you kind of think if there's something wrong within the body and you go to the doctor, you'll get an answer and you're given a tablet or you go to a consultant and there's something there that can fix things, so to speak. In a lot of cases, when you're talking about these things, there aren't answers, like simple answers in relation to how to fix things. And you have to go through a programme. And especially with something like irritable bowel syndrome, like irritable bowel syndrome, that the, the causes are unknown. Like, yes, we want to talk about, about stress and the gut-brain um, connection or whatever, but the causes are unknown and, and the symptoms are symptoms and they can't be seen on any cameras. Or And did I gather from you that some of the people were saying, well, thank God that somebody has described what I'm going through all Totally. And, and differentiated between the two because like irritable bowel, like inflammatory bowel disorder is a disease and it's a serious enough disease. Whereas irritable bowel syndrome is not a disease and there's a big difference between the two. So people were worried and they, they'd say that they speak about it at home even like, have I got IBD? Have I got IBS? And the names are bandied about and thrown out there, but they had no idea what IBD actually was and what IBS actually was. And that even leads on, like, say, to the celiac piece that we're doing today. So I suppose the education mm. piece, and again, doesn't it go back to, I know we talk about school all the time, but like, wouldn't it be wonderful, like, if there was like something like a full-time nurse or whatever, in school. So they go through college and even if it was like a student nurse that has just come out of college and they done this piece, like that there was, it was part of SPHG or part of one of those things that people were educated on what can actually happen within the body. The different illnesses, the different inflammatory disorders, all the different bits like high blood sugars, mm. the hydration piece, all of that. Because like the kids will come out with it then. They'll ha- you'll have it for life once you understand. And the interest in the conversation, did that come from the fact that people are experiencing symptoms that you described and now they're possibly able to put a Oh, totally. To- like it was like there's an answer. Like oh, there's okay. actually something is in, like if it's a builder and the energy levels are gone completely by 11 o'clock in the morning, like and feel really miserable no matter what they eat like the three months to six months pregnant like you can imagine if you were driving a lorry or you were in a bit like a builder with like a porter cabin or even if you're in an office and your toilet is next door to your office or whatever if you have like chronic diarrhea or something like that or like this persistent abdominal pain etc the embarrassment to that and the worry from the time you get into work in the morning like is awful like where mm. do you stop in a lorry so all of these kind of things really bothered people and when we're talking about it here in the radio I suppose you kind of you normalise it a little that people can actually pick up the phone, especially men, because women will talk about like everything under yeah, the sun yeah. because I suppose we've no choice after having the babies and all that piece. But for men, it's kind of more of a taboo and, subject. And was it largely men that made contact with it? Largely men. Isn't that very yeah, interesting? Yeah. Will you sort of recap for yeah. us, just, just a little? So just to go back to literally, and I wanted to do this today, right? So IBD is inflammatory bowel disorder. So it's a combination of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, okay? It's a serious gastro, gastro, gastrointestinal disease. And the cause is unknown. So we sometimes we think stress, etc., but we don't know. But this is a disease, okay? Mm. So it's inflammation or chronic swelling in the intestines, right? Um, the disease can be seen during diagnostic imaging. So you can actually see this disease when you when you go off and you get the the um, the telly thing of colonoscopy and all of that piece done. And you've increased risk of colon cancer with it, okay? With IBS, it's completely different. So IBS irritable bowel syndrome. So it's a chronic syndrome made up of a group of symptoms. So this one can't be tested. This is a functional mm. um, uh, gastro disorder. So it's completely different. Again, uh, stress, we don't know where it comes from. It can be a disturbance between the gut and brain or whatever. But it's still the same too, which is like crazy really, isn't it? But we don't know where it starts, right? This one is a syndrome. It doesn't cause inflammation. So there is no hospital or there isn't any surgery. There's no sign of the disease. So no matter what tests you get done, you can't see whether, whether you have a 
disease or an illness or whatever and there's no increased risk of colon cancer okay so the two are different one is the disease and it can be seen on camera and hospitalization etc the other one is um, uh, a syndrome so there's a big difference between the two but the signs then can be very similar okay so like with your inflammatory bowel disorder abdominal pain now diarrhea in the blood it wouldn't be the same with IBS diarrhea in the blood is IBD because the the patches and the rawness of of the gut etc is there the urgency for bowel movement and that's there in both rectal bleeding I suppose that's really just the disease disease one which is Mm. the IBD Mm. so disease and IBD kind of go together weight loss unexplained weight loss fever um, anemia things like that that's all IBD so IBS then which is the syndrome that can't be seen on the camera and doesn't require hospitalisation etc is different so it's chronic persistent abdominal pain so you nearly have a pain in your stomach all the time you're nearly bloated all the time so you literally like stomach is distended even when you're asleep mm. constipation um, alternates with diarrhea so and one can be as bad as the other like the chronic pain with constipation mucus in the stool rather than blood in the stool gassiness is a big one with this okay so that's and we've spoken about that a lot and the, the, even one of the ladies I spoke about the gassiness in her world is gone Remember the one I was saying was doing the, da- the dancing, dancing or whatever? Yes. Yeah, because we've 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 changed all this piece, right? The urge to go to the loo and nauseousness. There's a lot of nauseousness with IBS. And they're just the very simple ones. Like I've just given kind of an overview. But like the list can go on. The list can be endless. Like the chronic tiredness, I think that's one of the biggest ones. But the chronic tiredness can come from maldigestion or malabsorption. So I find that like that that's a huge area as in you can be eating a lot of decent enough food and think you're doing okay but the malabsorption issues are there but your body isn't actually able to use the nutrients and with the IBS that's the non-disease yes. one isn't it yep. okay yep. are there common denominators between those who are coming to you I mean are there weight issues are there exercise issues there's there's huge issues and you know it's funny with, with men I'm actually seeing a lot of men are very slim you know, a lot of men don't have the weight issues. They don't have any of that, but they're they're in a state as in the body is breaking down. Uh, they don't know what's wrong. The body's breaking down to such an extent. The muscle pain. I actually watched a man walk out of the clinic yesterday, and I didn't realise how bad the muscle pain w- was until I actually saw him get up and move. So when he was sitting, the energy levels were there, uh, and that frightened me a little. But his body has broken down to that extent. The tiredness, chronic tiredness, was him at ten or eleven o'clock in the morning, like getting in and out of the tractor, things like that. So like his body is breaking down in that way, and he even said to me like it's coming out in certain areas his knee I think his foot and you can even see it in his hands and the skin so like skin is another area that you can see and not to invade privacy but what yeah. age is that um, just roughly early you know 60s I mean, early 60s okay. but fe- fe- feels like about 85 you know, and that piece has to change, like that he feels 60 or younger. Like you should feel, if you can at all, five or six years younger than your age or even on age. But mm. you should feel like that you're well and healthy at the age you're at. And like if it's something like this, this frightens me as in how many people out there are suffering with something that can be that can be solved, you know, that we can actually work on and you can bring somebody back to within like really good level of health. Largely by changing diet. Largely by changing Diet and lifestyle, the two go together. Yeah. And when you're talking to people about this, like sometimes you, you say you have to take out things. Say we say dairy, just like throwing out dairy or whatever there. And people will look at you and I can see, especially men, their faces drop straight away. And it's like, I've like tea in my, like milk my tea, butter my bread, milk my cereal, uh, cheese, whatever, like apple tart and cream, whatever it is. Like you're talking about white sauce, mm. like gravies, all of that kind of thing. But um, yeah, the minute they start and I will say to them, um, you're here for a reason. That's one of the things anyway. You feel so miserable. Your body is on shutdown, you know. Just give it two weeks. Just give me two weeks. Most people give me two weeks. 
And when they give me two weeks, they come back. They can't explain it. That was said to me yesterday. Arms crossed at one of the men. He was like, I can't explain it. You know what I'm talking about, but I can't explain it. He must have said it about 15 times. And he said, I feel a little bit better. And he said, even my son said to me, if he's listening, he'll smile now because he knows what I'm talking about. He said, even my son said to me, Jesus, there's a pep coming back in your step. That's the simple thing. Like, that's... And is it a case that you take certain things out of the diet and it's trial and error? Yeah, it is really. But for me, when somebody will actually tell me what they're having, what, what's it within their world, I have a good idea fairly fast of, of the, the, the triggers, if that makes sense. Um, and you, most of the time, like sugar, preservatives, chemicals, like your dairy, things like that, like the bigger ones, they'll always go first. Then you have to go down in, in, and delve a little deeper uh, if you're not getting to the root of it. But those bigger ones, we didn't have them years ago. Like we didn't have preservatives or chemicals or the level of ultra processed sugar and rubbish that we have now. And that's breaking down the body. You know, and like a lot of these people, they don't even have a huge amount of this. But because yeah. the gut is already in a negative state, shall we say, these things exacerbate it. But what about the fact that we always had milk and eggs and butter? Yeah, but you see, the source of them was different. So like your eggs, a lot of the time were your hens out the back or you bought them like at a farmer's market or they came, say, remember Mulcahy's eggs heading out our road or whatever, like we're in all the local, local whatever. So like we knew what the hens were being fed. So they were being fed exactly what they should have been. Not like the grains that they're getting nowadays that are no good within the body. The same with our milk. Like you've no idea what's in the milk anymore. And like everything now is so intensively farmed. We have no idea what we're getting. When I was being reared, we used to have the milk out of the ball tank outside. So like that was brought in and that was your milk for the day or you drank it yourself with a cup. So we knew exactly what was in it. So now we don't know what's in our foodstuffs and our bodies breaking down because of it. We're not able for it. Interesting. All right then, celiac, because uh, people were cross with okay. you. You said you'd uh, deal with this last week and we just ran yes. out of time. Um, celiac, so, will you just explain? I will. And this us? is this again is an education piece. I'm going to go through the education steps of it. Okay. So celiac disease is a condition where your immune system attacks your own tissues when you eat gluten. Okay. It damages your gut, which is your small intestine. So your body cannot take in nutrients. So I'm going to say that again. Celiac disease is a condition where your own immune system attacks your own tissues when you eat gluten. So it damages within the gut. It damages the small intestine. So your body can't take in nutrients properly. So mal, mal, malabsorption, maldigestion issues. So it can only be, I suppose, really diagnosed with a blood test. OK, so if you have the, um, the IgA you know the antibodies when the doctor tests your blood he'll send you off then to get your endoscopy or whatever done and if that comes back then that you are intolerant to gluten you have celiac disease okay so gluten is the piece really I suppose that's the common denominator so what's gluten okay so gluten is a protein naturally found in certain cereals and grains it has no essential nutrients okay but uh, you can't eat foods that have gluten if you have celiac disease so what are the signs of it? So extreme fatigue, okay? So like iron deficiency. Um, you're deficient in B12 and folate. So again, the iron deficiency, anemia, the, the anemia piece is there. Unexpected weight loss, an itchy rash, infertility can even be a part of it, okay? And the symptoms that kind of go with it. So I suppose the biggest piece, the malabsorption and the um, maldigestion piece, the diarrhoea kind of causes that. So 45 to 85% of people that have celiac disease will have diarrhoea like... All the time. A lot of the time, yeah. And there was a man on here a couple of weeks ago and he stayed in my head. He was talking about his wife and he was talking about gluten and gluten Mm. foods and we were Mm. doing the vegan piece or whatever and and what an illness it it is. And Mm. like he's right, he's living with it. So like this is a serious disease, right? It can cause fatigue, it can cause weight loss, the bloating and gas is there, the abdominal pain is there, the nauseousness and vomiting is there, the uh, constipation, all of that, the lactose intolerance. That's one of the ones I'm finding a lot, Fran, right? And people don't realise this. So people with celiac disease remove gluten from their diet. 
but they keep dairy in their diet. If your gut has broken down because you have celiac disease and it, that, like celiac disease can be there for years and you mightn't be diagnosed. You could be diagnosed in later life because your body mm. just gets to a stage that says, I'm not tolerating gluten anymore and then you're diagnosed with it. But you don't realise at that stage your gut is in such a state that the small intestine can't handle the lactose um, enzyme. So, does, or so there's no lactose enzyme to break down lactose within the body, right? So you're intolerant to dairy as well at this stage. So you have to remove dairy. So if you're feeling really unwell and you've gluten gone, but your dairy is still in there, you need to take the dairy out as well and you need to get that gut back to where it needs to be. That's that's a big one for me because I'm finding that a lot of it's people... It's a very limited diet then, isn't it? It's a very limited diet, yeah. And like, even when you're talking about things, people will ring and they'll say to me, you know, um, um, what can I have, say, even in relation to like alcohol and things like that? Like, But you're you're removing everything like that has like any kind of a grain in it. So like you're taking out like bread, cereal, pasta, like cakes, pizzas, sweets, biscuits, um, communion wafer, like even to go go up to communion, like that's, you know. Okay. Yeah, like, and then your your drinks are like beer, ale, porter, stout, things like that. Now, people would say, you know, can I have vodka? Can I have, you know, and like some of these like grain-based or whatever. They are so distilled, you're okay with the clear liqueurs. So like your vodkas and gins and things like that will be okay within the body. But it's a serious illness. It's, it's another immune system disorder yeah. that attacks... And somebody yourself. was telling me, I'm not sure if it was you or somebody else, that, OK, you go into a restaurant and you, you decide on the gluten-free options on on the menu. But if there's even a product in in contact with another product that sick. has gluten in it, you'll be sick. Yeah, yeah, you will. And like, you'll end up going home. Like, it can ruin so many nights out and days out and whatever if you can't get it right. Now, I think restaurants are getting much better in relation to all of this. If you say you have an intolerance issue, you know, if you say, like, you're allergic to something or whatever, they have to worry, you know. And that's one of the big ones. Um, people ask me this during the week. Uh, they went to ring in and um, to book in and they would have said to the girls, you know, um, I have an allergy, I'm allergic to this, I'm allergic to that or whatever. And I said to them, can you go back and clarify, is it an allergy or is it an intolerance issue? The two are completely different and we kind of bandied the two words about again mm. because we don't know. So if you're allergic to something that serious and you have that allergic, or you have an allergic reaction, say to nuts or whatever, you normally, you have that for life. Like an allergic reaction will be there and like that breaks the body down and you're in serious trouble. Mm. The intolerance issues are completely different. They're not there for life. So I say to people all the time, if you're intolerant to something, once we take out everything and we heal, so we have to heal. And once you do the healing, it's literally like your gut is an open wound. So like an open wound on like a scar on your hand, that wound is open. And while you stay putting in the, the inflammatory things, the wound will stay open. It's like putting salt. It'll never scab over, so to speak, and the skin will never grow on it. You've got to close that wound. So when you close the wound, then you have a good chance that your gut is healed and a lot of the things you've taken out, you know, are good to come back in again. Now, with celiac disease, because that's what we're talking about today, you will never be able to eat gluten because that's going to affect you. Ever. So it can't be reintroduced. No, no, you can't. Uh, no, no, no. Point, with gluten, yeah. gluten is gone. But yeah. there are similarities between IBS and But and like it's all the celiac. same. Like everything I've, I've, yeah. I've mentioned, like you're talking about like the stomach pain and the swelling in the stomach and the diarrhea and the constipation. And so you really have to go to yeah. an expert and you have to sit down with somebody and you have to get that diagnosis if you can at all. Do you get a bit annoyed that uh, a lot of the time it's accepted as the norm because they're pushing all these products to stop bloating, to, to stop indigestion and all of that, as if it's norm that you should normal that you should feel like this. But if you take our pill, you'll feel grand. Um, 
it drives me insane, but it's no different, I think, really, in, like, say, the high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Anyway, the body's breaking down, there's a tablet there, like, to manage it for a certain length of time. Mm. That's what it does, it manages it. And, and that's it. necessary at times. Well, like, well. of course, like, the people yes. are coming in on statins and blood pressure. That's absolutely, yeah, 100%. But it's not the norm, and it shouldn't be that you need to stay increasing the dose of different things, you know. And, like, yes, the Nexiums and all of them, I hate them with a passion because they literally just mask what's going on underneath. So yes. the fire is still there the fire is still breaking down the body but this is just masking it so yes it'll stop the acid reflux coming up you won't feel it uh, you won't feel as miserable you'll get into bed and you'll go to sleep for a couple of hours but the fire is still lighting right you're not dealing with the core issue you have yeah. to get to the core issue of this if the body's breaking yeah. down the body's breaking down that's one of our listeners says Fran I'm very sorry but listening to yourself and uh, Muriel there I can't help but think of taco fries <laughs> I love taco fries <laughs> Ah, poor Jenny is out there and Jenny has concerns because her dad had colon cancer and she's wondering, does that mean that she'll get it? Now, obviously that's a medical uh, Mm. issue, but I feel so sorry for her now. Jenny, you don't need to worry because, you see, it's funny, like, as in, heart is in my family. Like, everybody has something. So, Mm. like, we're genetically disposed regardless. But if you know something is there, then you have to make a conscious effort to make sure that you're as well as you can be. So, if Jenny has any of the symptoms that I'm after describing here, she needs to go and, like, go to an expert and sit down and see what she needs to do to make sure she keeps herself as well. if she doesn't, should she look to a health regime around the colon in some way? Well, like, once she keeps her small intestine, once she keeps her gut well, the body becomes well. So, you don't need to worry about these things. Like, like... The genetic side, we can't beat our genes. Like, that's literally, like, if you're going to get something because of the genetic side, there's not a lot you can do about it, but you can become as well and healthy as you as you can be. And I often think the more well we are, the more we push this out. So instead of, say, getting colon cancer at 60, if it's there and you're genetically disposed and, like, if you're eating all wrong, yes, you can have it earlier. Yes. You could maybe push that out to 85 or 90, you know? So, like, you can push things way out if the body's there well. There you go. And uh, you sent me the most bossy uh, voice piece during the week telling me that I had to begin documenting what what I eat and foolishly of course I went along with you and and uh, it is kind of interesting when you write down everything you eat isn't it? Well I just think it makes you accountable like when you see it and it's written down and you know you have to give it to somebody um, mm. once you're honest with it it's, it's you well, know Well but funny enough you see I'm not sure whether I was being careful because I knew that you were going to talk to me about it or whether it was genuinely documenting what I have if you I know, know because that's that's a question you see it's a piece I'm going to do later on in social media, right? Because I'm seeing whatever, eight or ten people a day at the minute, Fran, right? Um, weight loss, all the issues we've talking about here are one side. And then weight loss and people carrying weight and doing all that is another side. I'm seeing the emotional breakdown in people. And by the time I finish in the evening time, I am so knackered, I can't talk to anyone. So people are very, very upset on a lot of different sides of their health and how they look and how they feel and all of that. So I just think the penny has to drop somewhere that somebody, when somebody's writing it down, they see themselves of what they're doing and they know exactly where they're going wrong. But I think it's not until the body breaks down or something happens within your world that you feel, I can't do this anymore. I literally can't get through another day doing what I'm doing, so I have to make changes. You know, and I know tablets aren't going to help and I know whatever, so I have to make changes. So I think that's the piece, really. And like... I was talking about this and I'm going to do it again this evening. There are so many different interventions. Once you start writing somebody down and I can get a feel for somebody. So when I get a week of your food, like I know we laugh and we talk about the Red Bull and talk mm. about that, but mm. there's a lot of good stuff as well, you know. Mm. So when I get a feel for it, I'll, I'll get a feel for who you are and what's actually happening within the body. 
And the different interventions are there then. For some people, like, if you want to get well and healthy, if you want to lose a few pounds in weight or whatever, like, some people calories in versus calories out doesn't work. For some people, like, a low-carb diet doesn't work. Like, there's so many different things. Some people might need medical intervention, you know, and that's what I'm finding every day. So when I make somebody be accountable and they write it down, it's gone into their head and they're thinking about themselves and they're thinking about their lifestyle and they're thinking about what they're doing. And they're thinking about, yeah, where does the penny drop or when does it drop? And they're thinking about where do I want to be in the next few years? And then I can help with the other piece because I can simplify it. Okay. And so would you advise people out there just document it? I mean, you might want to keep it private to yourself. Oh, totally. The minute you start writing it down and you get like an idea of exactly what's going in. And like, if you are really... One girl came in this week and she sat in the bed and she cried for 15 minutes, right? So miserable. So miserable with how she looked, how she felt. All of it. Her world was just going backwards as far as she was concerned. Like by the time she left, she felt that there was hope. She had written everything down and I was able to pinpoint the different bits and pieces for her friend that, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see this? And she started getting it. And like, that's not even me being an expert. It was even just, it was simplified. She couldn't see because she was so miserable. So she couldn't see what she had. So listen, don't let you get yourself into that state. If you are, reach out for help, but don't let yourself write it down now and just start looking from today. What am I having for my dinner? What am I having for my tea? How many times do I snack during the day? How many times are the snacks unhealthy or healthy? How much water do I get in? How much tea and coffee do I drink? All of that kind of thing and see where the passion's going. Okay, and you might even change your mind because I went for a sandwich yesterday afternoon to the lovely French Quarter in uh, Tipperary Town and I ordered a sandwich which was healthy, which was, was a chicken sandwich with nothing on it, just chicken and bread. And then I ha- I saw the most gorgeous lemon meringue pie. I mean, it was just talking to me. It was so beautiful. But because I had to sort of present my document to, to you then, I said, no, I had a tiny little snack instead. So it does make you think. And fairness. you know, when you walked out, now, be honest with me now, right, without mm. being funny, right? Mm. Did you feel better within an hour of not having the lemon meringue pie? No. Ah, Jesus. <laughs> No, but I knew that I'd sort of get more brownie brownie points from you if I didn't have the lemon meringue pie. The way the sugars rise and then drop, because if you'd had the lemon meringue pie, you would have wanted something again within half an hour. Do you think? Well, that's the way it works, like, Probably more lemon meringue pie, I would imagine. (laughs) But anyway, I didn't have it, and I had a little tiny miserable-looking snack instead. But it takes 21 days to form a habit. 21 days. So that's literally... And, like, I love chocolate brownies. I love sticky toffee pudding. Like, I love all of those things. We were in the garden centre the other day, and you know I love the garden centre. That was Monday, and I had eaten all wrong over the weekend. And I felt miserable because I'd eaten all wrong over the weekend. Uh, Charlotte's with me. She can eat anything she wants. Some people can, Mm, right? I know. I hate them, don't you? Oh, Lord. And when you're working and God knows whatever. So she had her lovely big breakfast, and what did she? Oh, they do the most gorgeous. It was lemon meringue pie, actually, as you're talking about it. But she had both. I literally had my turkey and salad. (laughs) And I wanted my chocolate brownie, but I knew if I started that again on Monday morning, I was done for the day. So sometimes we just have to say. If people want to uh, talk to you, how can they do that, Call us, please, on 052 61 or it's www.marito8020.com. All right, great to see you. Thanks very much indeed, Mary. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie and you're very welcome back. The spectre of the disappeared, those abducted, secretly executed and their bodies buried in remote locations 
has overshadowed the debate around the legacy of the Troubles in Northern Ireland for the last uh, two decades. But contrary to popular belief, forced disappearances have been part of political conflict in Ireland for over 200 years. And Tipperary has had its fair share of disappears. Now, some of those stories are included in a new book from Podrick Ogue O'Rourke called The Disappeared. Forced Disappearances in Ireland, 1798 to 1998. And Podrick joins me now. Good morning to you, Podrick. Good morning, Frank. And thanks very much for your time today. Of course, this phenomenon, it's not just an Irish one. I mean, it's it's international, isn't it? Yeah, if you were to go global, um, let's say back in the 1930s, you had the Spanish Civil War and approximately a quarter of a million people were disappeared back then in that conflict. Many of those bodies are, are still missing. And they were disappeared by both the um, Francoist forces and the Republican forces. More recently, if you go to the Syrian civil war, Amnesty International estimates that around 70,000 people uh, were disappeared. Uh, And again, many of those, of course, are still missing. In Ireland, when we talk about the disappeared, we tend to think of the troubles mm. in the north of Ireland between 1969 to 1998. Um, but it, it, back then, the, the IRA, provisional IRA, disappeared just under 20 people. But if you look at the War of Independence, the so-called, so-called good IRA or old IRA, Um, disappeared 94 people during the War of Independence. Some of them local Irish civilians suspected of being spies. Um, Some of them British soldiers or black and tans were captured. And by my count, there were six people disappeared by the Republicans in Tipperary during the War of Independence and another six um, disappeared by them during the Civil War. Tell me about some of those Tipperary disappeared, if if you would, Sir Podrick. Um, well, I suppose the first man who was disappeared was not a native of Tipperary. Uh, he was a guy who went by the alias of Patrick O'Neill. He was one of a number of suspicious characters seen by the IRA to visit Clonmel RIC barracks where the RIC and Black and Tans would have been based. And um, in early 1920, I think in January 1920, one day when he left the barracks and this guy was civilian clothes, nobody knew who he was, he was held up by the the IRA. He gave his name as Patrick O'Neill. He said that he was from Arklow and Wicklow, that he was an ex-soldier. He was carrying coded messages and he was carrying some rifle ammunition, which looked very suspicious to the IRA, and he had no explanation for this. So he was executed by the IRA, and he was buried at Rose Green in Tipperary, and his body is still hidden there. I'm particularly um, intrigued with the story of Thomas Kirby, Padraig. Essentially, he was a spy, or was he? Thomas Kirby was a particular type of spy, what the British would call in their intelligence papers an identifier. And a regular spy would be somebody who'd maybe write letters or pass information in person to the British Army or the Black and Tans, whereas an identifier was far more dangerous to the Republicans. An identifier was a type of spy who was willing to actually meet up with the British forces, 
jump onto their lorries at night, drive around with them and give them directions and say, take the next left here and that will take us into the village. And then the third house on the right is the one you're looking for. And that Shocknessy's house leaves them alone. They're non-political, mm. but maybe that's that's McGrath's and you're sure to find rebels in there. So, And often these guys would try and protect or disguise themselves by dressing in British Army uniform. So Thomas Kirby was from the village of Golden and he had joined the British Army twice in 1898 and in 1916 and on both occasions he had been discharged as being medically unfit. He seemed to have mental health difficulties. But by the time the War of Independence comes, the British Army is obviously in great difficulty and they recruit him as an identifier. And he's doing this work. It's it's known to the IRA what he is up to, despite the fact that he wears the disguise of a, a British Army uniform. And early in um, in, 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 in 1921, uh, he is actually arrested by the IRA at the Big Man's Pub in Ballybrack, which I understand is, is still there today. Mm. And he was taken away from there. He was executed and buried on a hillside. And his body remained there until 1990 when there was an old IRA veteran on his deathbed expressed the wish that the body would be um, exhumed. And the Gardaí went out and they searched and they found uh, his his body. And it was in a remarkable state of uh, preservation. His body was reinterned formally in a churchyard. But if you go into the Tipperary Museum in Clonmel, um, before they reburied him, they actually kept his boots, his cardigan, uh, his pipe, uh, pencil. Basically, some of his possessions are actually there on display in the museum today. Uh, Jerry O'Brien, then. Will you tell me about Jerry O'Brien? Because, again, uh, I suppose uh, an unusual story. Jerry O'Brien is probably the Tipperary disappeared person that we know the least about. Mm. We only have one reference to him. It's in the testimony of an IRA veteran who says that there was a guy picked up called Jerry O'Brien who was a tinker. And by that, we don't know, was he an actual tinsmith or was the person saying he was a member of a, a travelling commu- community? Mm. That's kind of the language they used at the time. Yes. But that this guy was shot by the IRA's upper church company and that he was um, secretly buried. And we don't know in his case, perhaps one of your listeners do, where he was buried and what the reason he was shot for, but presumably he was suspected of being a spy. The RIC then, there were a number of RIC people uh, executed, weren't there? Yeah, the most famous of them would be um, District Inspector Gilbert Potter. Yeah. And he was captured by the IRA after the Highlands Cross ambush in April of 1921. He hadn't actually been involved in the fighting. He just drove onto the ambush scene by accident afterwards. And he was the most high-ranking RIC officer to be captured by the IRA during the conflict. And they had a plan to ransom him, basically, for the life of an IRA man, Thomas Trainer, who was under a sentence of death in Dublin for taking part in the assassinations on the morning of, of Bloody Sunday. The British weren't willing to negotiate with the IRA or get involved in a a prisoner exchange. So after Traynor was executed, the IRA executed Potter and buried him um, on a riverbank. 
Now, Potter is an interesting case because after the War of Independence ended with the truce in July of 1921, um, the IRA had sympathy for his wife and actually exhumed his body and returned it to the Potter family. There were two other RIC constables. In fact, they were black and tans who were shot near Nina. Um, Constable Joseph Daly and Constable Joe Gallivan. One of them was from Tipperary, or sorry, one of them was from Meath, the other was from Kerry, and they were meeting two local girls in Nina. They walked into an ambush the IRA had prepared. Uh, The IRA took them prisoner, uh, took them away and, and executed them and buried their body in a bog. And then in 1924, a local priest who wanted them to have a Christian burial actually contacted the Gardaí and their bodies were recovered. That faction of the RIC as well, Podrick, uh, the murder gang, um, they, I mean, that resulted in, in a number of deaths, didn't it? It did. There was quite a number of them. And I would recommend to everyone um, Sean Hogan's book on the RIC in Black yeah. and Black Tans in, in North Tipperary. We tend to have a very sanitised version of the War of Independence. On the Republican side, we tend to look at events like the Solahead Bag ambush mm. or the exploits of um, Dan Breen and Sean Tracy, and it's all very heroic and boys' own adventures. But we don't look at the, um, the, the grimmer stuff like the disappearances. And then when you talk about the, the murder gang, often people have this very sanitised idea that, oh, all the assassinations and all the killings, that these must have been carried out by Englishmen in the black and tans, when often some of the worst uh, killings committed by the British Crown forces during the War of Independence were actually done by Irishmen in the RIC and British Army. It might surprise people as well that, you know, there were disappearances during the truce, for example, Podrick. Yeah, one person in particular, um, William Dillon, springs to mind. His family would have been Catholic loyalists, and they lived in the um, Ballypatrick Kilcash area, um, just near Clonmel. William Dillon had been involved in giving information to the British Army Uh, at the end of the War of Independence and the information he gave in association with his brother, uh, Thomas Dillon Jr., that resulted in the British Army search that almost captured an IRA flying column. So the IRA were were out for revenge. This would have happened only a few days before the, the, the truce, the ceasefire of the 11th of July, 1921. So in order to get their revenge, the IRA went and attacked the Dillon home in attempt to uh, to capture them uh, in uh, July of 1921. And this failed. The, the IRA attacked the home and they actually shot dead his 15-year-old uh, sister, Bridget Babe Dillon, as she was known. The ceasefire came then and uh, the IRA, even though they had killed this innocent girl, weren't weren't happy with that. They were still out for um, to exact their revenge on William Dillon himself. And he was abducted by the IRA in, um, I think, April of, of 1922. And uh, no more was heard of him really until his body was found in a, a Tullamane castle 
towards the end of the civil war. And it would appear that he'd been executed by the IRA for spying. And you have much more detail in the book about other instances of uh, disappeared in uh, Tipperary. Uh, but just to finish with, the, the notion of the disappeared, it still plays a part in our politics, God knows. It does, but it's usually, let's say, government politicians criticising Sinn Féin for, let's say, Columba McVeigh or Jim yes. McConville or Captain Robert Nyrak, which would be kind of household names. Um, but we tend to talk less in the media about the fact that people who were founding members of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael would also have been responsible for um, killings and disappearances that were very similar. For example, if you look at Fine Gael, you have um, the Richard Mulcahy would have been the mm. IRA's chief of staff during the War of Independence. So most of the killings we've talked about, he's the person who was sanctioning them. And if you look at the Fianna Fáil side of things, you had Fianna Fáil TDs like Martin Corrie in Cork, who himself executed uh, spies and British soldiers. And you had people like um, Sean Moylan, who was a, a cabinet minister in, in mm. Fianna Fáil. And uh, he gave the orders directly uh, for a, a former RIC man to be executed and uh, disappeared. It's very interesting. The book is called The Disappeared Forced Disappearances in Ireland 1798 to 1998 and uh, the author is Podrick O'Rourke. I presume it's in all the all the bookstores out there, Podrick? In all good bookshops now and wherever you're living, try and support your local bookshop. That's very important yeah. these days. Uh, don't give the money to Jeff Be- Bezos and Amazon. <laughs> he has enough money already. All right. Gurmila Mahagut, Podrick, thanks very much indeed. Well, for him. If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call TIP today on 1-800-938-007. Somebody saying, I hope Gareth Ahern was listening to that last uh, item. Well, in fairness, not just Gareth Ahern, but well, hopefully all politicians were listening to it and uh, having a think about it. Um, my friend Liam was on and he was complimenting us for doing the celiac um, piece there with uh, Muriel, but he says, I bet you didn't mention all the Mars bars in the drawer. Ha, ha, ha. Liam, I didn't know you knew about the Mars bars in the drawer, but thank you and good to hear from you today. Time to talk farming. Glad to be joined now by Pat O'Toole from the Irish Farmers Journal. Good morning to you, Pat. Good morning, Fran. Good to talk to you today. It's kind of worrying, Pat, the outbreak of TB yeah. in the herds. It's at a, a, a 10-year high. Yeah, it's been worsening for some time. It is a worry. Um, and I suppose there's very little farmers can do about it when it strikes your herd. Uh, the incidence is rising, both the number of herds that are being locked up and the number of cases. There was 29,000 cases in 2023, which was a 24% increase on 2022. And 2022, unfortunately, had been an increase on the previous year. We're, we're on a rising plane. Um, the... Uh, 4.89 uh, herds or percentage of herds in the country experienced a new TB breakdown. So that's one in 20, basically. Mm-hmm. And do we know uh, why, Pat? Do you know what's, what's causing this? Well, farmers are putting a lot of blame on uh, on the, that the TB is being spread by wildlife, mm-hmm. uh, badgers and particularly deer. So there is a wildlife program in place for badgers for some years, which had proven effective and we had brought TB levels down 
uh, significantly. But over the last 15 years in particular, the deer population has uh, expanded hugely. And the locations that we see deer in, like we see deer at home, yeah. uh, where I am in Ferns and Wexford, there never would have been wild deer. And now there are uh, roaming the fields. <clears throat> and uh, to be honest, on, on, on the tillage farm, they're not doing mm. a whole lot of, making a whole lot of difference to my life. But, but in... Uh, on livestock farms, it's impossible to fence them out, and you're taking the you know huge measures around biosecurity on your farm for your herd. But the deer can come in and out as they please because literally there's no fence; they can't jump. Yeah. So a lot, um, lot of it, issues. That is a problem. A lot of issues yeah, in temporary around that uh, as well. Absolutely, uh, overseas trade. I guess. Uh, I mean, this this would greatly affect that, wouldn't it? Uh, no, it doesn't. It affects what it affects is. Uh, because we take any animals that have TB out, um, so they're removed, depopulated. It's expensive. Uh, It's expensive to the farmer, and the aid that comes from the state means it's expensive to the state. The programme is costing more than it ever has before, but um, farmers are losing more money than ever before, and particularly in terms of the generations of (coughs) breeding that they've built up Mm. on dairy farms and in suckler herds, where you have bred these animals... um, to your to your liking, and um, you you have a herd that you're really happy with and proud of, and then it's depopulated because of a TB outbreak. That's a real that's a real heartbreaker for for families, and that's happening everywhere uh, across the country. There are some real bad back spots, especially around Wicklow is a back spot, um, and again what the farmers there are are very convinced that the deer population is the main cause. Battery energy storage systems, uh, Pat, um, are these opportunities for farmers? Yeah, I suppose they are. It's another land use. So in battery, um, nothing like the renewable energy sources yeah. uh, in terms of the land requirement, say if you're talking about wind or if you're talking about solar, they need, you know, hundreds of acres uh, for for large farms. But uh, the uh, the battery storage capacity, a few acres would <coughs> would build a, the typical battery storage unit. There's only a handful in the country, but this is going to grow. The main purpose of the battery storage units is to harvest that uh, th- that renewable energy, which is. You, you can't determine when that renewable energy is generated. The sun shines when it shines, the wind mm. blows when it blows, and then to store that energy until it's needed because most of the renewable energy from solar is produced during the daylight hours and most of the energy requirement in our homes is in the evenings. So for that reason, we have um, we, we have this storage requirement. So yes, it is, absolutely. Mm. But like all renewables, what we would like to see is some planning and some, you know, an overarching land use policy which puts these things in the right place for the right reason. What kind of money are we talking about? Uh, well, again, that's a, a supply and demand market. But they, they, there are about twenty to twenty-five thousand euros an acre a year for for these storage units. Right. Um, yeah. But but, but it would be a long-term that. lease, I guess, would it? You know, so you'd have land tied up there, I suppose. That's it's pretty much permanently, semi-permanently taken out of production because you're talking about a hardcore area. So you know, it, it would be the equivalent of putting it into a car park in terms of future agricultural use uh, and returning it to agriculture. But again, the location of these storage areas is hugely important, and the location of of um, of the solar farms themselves, <laughs> it's been pointed out to me that um, 
there's hundreds of acres of land around me in Wexford. You know, good fertile tillage land, which is uh, and 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 grassland. And this is happening in other parts of the country, which is being put put under solar farms and taking out of food production. Um, meanwhile, you have the bogs which are being rewetted, and there's no reason why you couldn't put solar panels on stilts mm. and uh, and use the, so the bogs could be both uh, rewetted and rewilded but also uh, have solar panels. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. Dual, dual usage. Use exactly. T- tillage is your thing, and you alluded to it there a couple of times. These proposals to pay farmers to move into tillage, what, what, are, what are you making of that, Pat? I'll be honest, I have an eyebrow raised. Thing. Like, I understand why they're saying it, but again, this is about land use. The, really, uh, the reality is that uh, to, to move tillage, to move land into tillage usage, it has to pay better than other enterprises. And right now, it doesn't hold a candle to dairy farming, even with the difficulties that dairy farming had last year. Um, tillage farming is not competitive. So there's only so much land, and no matter what incentives they put in place, uh, it, it's it, it's only a sticking plaster unless we have some kind of link up between our dairy and our beef production and the grain, cereals, and protein production uh, for for that uh, herd and for our, our pigs and for our poultry. Uh, we import a lot of grain, mm. and we're going to be importing more and more <coughs> unless tillage farming is joined in, and uh, where where Irish grain feeding Irish animals becomes the part of the branding of our food. Well, as you know, I'm not a farmer, Pat, but I can never understand that it took the war in Ukraine for us to realise that we had no self-sufficiency in terms of grain, for example, you know? Yeah, uh, well, there was an awareness of it, but but it's only when um, it's unavailable uh, that you have an issue. But, I mean, uh, these globalised food systems, it's not just about grain, the, the fact that an awful lot of fruit and vegetables yeah. are coming from yeah. Spain and the Netherlands makes absolutely no sense. Um, there are some reasons why grain is an issue in Ireland. The main reason is we're so, it's so good an environment for growing grass mm. that we, 90% of our farmland is grass and that is unique across Europe. It's the selling point of Irish uh, food yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and our milk yeah. <coughs> uh, and um, it sets us apart. It's why we have such a green nation. Um, there are issues as well. I mean, if we massively increase cereals production, uh, will we there be a focus on organic cereals production, which is very challenging in the environment we have because it's so humid and damp. Uh, we have a lot of uh, issues with fungal infections, mm. so we need mm. fungicides. Uh, there is increasing pest issues, largely uh, partly through imports that are coming in, and, and there are new weeds on the horizon. So well. uh, controlling them in an organic environment is quite difficult, but we now have organic farmers saying there's uh, going to be a requirement of about 60,000 ton, tons of organic feed in Ireland to feed animals uh, next winter, and there's no, there's no real supply line there at the moment. So it may be that we're going to need to focus on organic cereals production uh, if we're going to satisfy uh, that requirement. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I I don't see a pathway to doing that. All right, Pat, great to talk to you as always. And thanks for your time this morning. That's Patrick Tull there from the Irish Farmers Journal. It's on your shelves uh, right now. That's it for me. Doc produced. Ellie looks after our content. Stephen is on the way with the Time Tunnel. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. Look after yourselves, won't you? Bye-bye. Tip today.
with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. 